Hello, and welcome to the St. Louis Bullpen Show. My name is John Fleming. Um, I'm actually the guy that founded St. Louis Bullpen. I registered the domain name and I uh, write a bunch of articles for it now, and now I'm co-hosting the podcast, as always, with Alex Turpin. How are you doing, Alex? Good. A nice flex, by the way. About registering a website or about writing for a website? Uh, about registering for the website. How many people can say they've done that? Um, I, I don't know the exact amount. I assume a, a fairly large amount. It's, it's Yeah, you can. Um, my mom can. She did that once. I've never done that, though. Um, Mark Zuckerberg can. He can. Um, um, and I wonder if there's anything... That, that all seems pretty on the level, right? I haven't been watching the news much like the last week or so. Uh, they made that movie about him. That, that was a flattering tale. I know that much. Um, yeah, but yeah, I've, I've avoided news about anything. I, I say as we get ready to talk about news. Who uh, who made the social network? Was that an Aaron Sorkin movie, or does it just seem like something that should be an Aaron Sorkin movie? Sorkin wrote it. It was uh, David Fincher who directed it. I see. And honestly, it was not my favorite movie. I, I think it's overrated, personally, but... I think I watched it and I don't remember anything about it. So it was, there, about, it was about the founding of Facebook. That's what I, I, yeah, I know that much, but I, I don't remember. I couldn't tell you one thing that I took away from it. Um, the main character's name was Mark. Mark who? Um, I think it was like Zetterberg or something. I don't remember. But his name was first name was Mark for sure. So that's good. We got that much down. Yeah. Okay, so um, we didn't record last week, but. Uh, not a whole lot has happened in Cardinals news in the last two weeks since our last episode. A lot has happened in baseball news. Right. It's not not good. It's yeah. yeah. Well, if we if we want to start off on a lighter foot, do you want to say why we didn't record last week? Um, I don't know that we had a specific reason. I was out of town on Thursday and Friday, so that's yeah. That's what I was getting. Okay. Yeah. That's what okay. I was getting. At, yeah. I went to uh, I went to Boston for a, a long weekend. I, I did a tour of Fenway Park, which did not have grass in it. And uh, yeah, it looked really bad. <laughs> yeah, I I ate at a restaurant that actually is inside Fen like not inside Fenway Park, but like you look out the what would theoretically be a window, and it's actually like the outfield wall in Fenway Park, which I didn't realize existed until we got in there and I looked over and I was like, oh, that's that that's the stadium. That's so wait, okay. Just so we're clear about this, you ate at you ate at a restaurant where you look out the window at the wall of a baseball stadium. Well, it's inside the wall, so you're looking out like from center field. It's like a caged area. Is it sort of kind of in like the same area where the the uh, gremlins who changed the score? I'm just uh, assuming. I don't know how they do this, but, um, but the the gremlins that live inside. Um, the scoreboard uh, change the score. Is it kind of like that? Well, the manual scoreboard is in left field, and this was in center field. So I'm not sure how much the gremlins come into contact with that area. Also, there wasn't a game going on, so it's not like I actually got to see any action other than like a few groundskeepers walking around. Did you see any of the gremlins? I did not. But it's also possible that a gremlin put a curse on me. And... It, does that explain the Blues performance in that game you went to? Um, I think... I think maybe the lack of Vladimir Tarasenko may have been part of it as well. And that's a curse. I, I was privileged to uh, to go to Boston and watch the first Blues game in seven months that they didn't score any goals in. Yeah, that's great. Um, good, boy, talk good, about good times. Otherwise, though, yeah, talk about getting the Blues, huh? 
Yeah. And that's something that probably nobody's ever said before. I don't think, not to my knowledge. I, I think I got the blues just from hearing you say it, though. Well, and see, now you've turned it around on me, so I don't like it as much. Yeah, we're getting a little bit... Uh... I think a, a fun fact about um, uh, Fenway, the green monster that's there, um, they actually, that is actually named for... So the, the gremlins that live inside of it, their their king is um, much larger than the rest of them, as you might imagine. Um, and uh, very very much has uh, terrified the patrons of Fenway Park for years. Um, and so they, they call it a green green monster because that's what it is. Um, it's horrifying. Um, okay, so, so an, affront I... to, an affront to all things holy, really. And they just kind of named the wall after it because um, that's where it lives. So I, I don't want to dispel any rumors. It's actually named after Al Green. It's yeah, that's 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 what his real name is. Oh, I thought when they said Al Green, they meant like the like the Let's Stay Together singer guy. I, no, I guess I wasn't paying them attention on the tour. And this is our Halloween episode. I'd yeah, say. very spooky episode. I know everyone's afraid of our uh, our story. So so that's one fun fact about Fenway Park. The other fun fact: they filmed much of um, the movie The Town there. That is true. When yeah. it, part of the uh, tour involved us going into the uh, the press box, and mm-hmm. the guy who was giving the tour pointed out specifically to a woman there and pointed out that she was in the same seat that uh, Brad Pitt was in during Moneyball whenever they had the scene at Fenway. I, oh, cool. It was nowhere near that particular seat. But, how many, uh, how many uh, movies can you name off the top of your head that have scenes at Fenway Park? And this. You're putting me at a little bit of an unfair advantage because I just was on a tour where they started listing off movies. That oh, well, so. yeah, so maybe I'll, I, I can think of those two. Um, there's a scene of Spotlight, which is one of my favorite movies of recent years. Um, yeah, where they're Dreams, at. Field of Dreams is a big one. That's a Fenway. Yeah. Um, Fever Pitch is there. There's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of, there was never anything in The Departed in that was in Fenway Park, was there? I um, I don't know if they even make a reference to the Red Sox. I, I spent, oh, which is weird. Spent most of the weekend just like in a bad Boston accent, just like yelling at my friends, "Are you a cop?" Like that sort of thing. So yeah, and that's the best word to say with a Boston accent is "cop." It's, it's the best word I can say without um, getting the censors involved. At least there are well, there, there's another one that I can think of that we're not. Neither of us are going to say on this podcast or in real life um uh i think there was a scene of wasn't the the climactic scene of ted at fenway park yes it was actually yeah i forgot about that i haven't thought about that movie since i saw it but why are there so many why are there so many good movies that well i'd I'd say ted i mean it's not like ted was great but why are there so good movies that are set in boston there's just something about movies set in boston they always have good dialogue i've noticed i mean i think it's the accent i think people are just Love hearing, and but the accents were amazing up there. And also, this was very disappointing. But the people in Boston were all super nice. Like I really went in there wanting to hate them, and they were all very nice. Even though we were like wearing blue Stanley Cup champions shirt, just asking for it. <laughs> yeah, like we were basically like trying to get people to start yelling at us. And like we went into a donut place, and they started playing Gloria for us, which was yeah, that's really nice. Why are you doing this for us? This is. If that was at a donut place, I thought that was at a bar that they did that. No, it was at a uh, a donut place. Oh, they were playing a bunch of like '80s pop songs, so it kind of fit the theme of it anyway. But well, that was nice of them. Yeah, and so you was... did, um, you did go to Black Fan Street. Yes, I um, 
the Did you? honor of um, going to Black Fan Street, which um, for those who don't get the reference, I guess I'll pull up the tweet now. John Heyman, who is, you know, one of the better uh, MLB insiders anyway, but among, you know, MLB writers, I think has my favorite Twitter account by far. Like the polar opposite of like a Keith Law or a Jeff Passan where they're just insipid to watch tweet. John Heyman is an absolute delight. Well, the fact that this tweet came from Heyman of all people, who's normally a pretty like straightforward reporter. Yeah, very rarely offers commentary on things. Like he occasionally goes off into sort of um, like moderately woke tweets that I was not expecting years ago. But yeah. uh, okay, so here's the uh, tweet and. If you happen to follow me on Twitter, then you'll be able to go to the tweet yourself and find my reply to it, where I posted a, a picture of myself and then a picture of my friend Jason standing next to a, uh, a sign that says Black Fan. But the, uh, the tweet says, past street called Black Fan on the way to Fenway and haven't seen one since. Which, <laughs> it, to be funny. fair, if now, if let's be fair about this. If someone did that tweet, about St. Louis, we would get really mad, uh, most likely. I think I would just assume that they were lying because, like, but what are the what are graphics? But what are the odds that there is a street with that name? When I first saw that tweet, I thought he was like making a weird joke, but no, that's an actual street. It is, and it's like like a, a moderately long walk, but still walking distance from the park. Like it's that that's how it went. So in other words, you got the most out of your experience in uh, in Boston. Yeah, I gotta say the people in my uh, the people in my group were not as excited about going to Black Fan Street as I was. <laughs> I, I told them that I would straight up go there by myself and like take a selfie next to it if that's what I had to do. But the opportunity presents itself <laughs> so often. Yeah. To make a joke for Twitter. So um, good baseball talk we're having, right? It, that one was actually baseball adjacent, so... Yeah, that was uh, our transition to actually talking about baseball. Yeah, it's better than we usually do to start these things off. So, this World Series has... Um, as, as we're talking right now, we're talking before Game 6 of the World Series. By the time this goes up, most of you probably will have at least watched Game 6, maybe even Game 7, if, if it happens. Mm-hmm. And um, first two games were won by the Washington Nationals in Houston... Next three games were won by the Houston Astros in Washington. Yeah. Really only the first game was competitive. It was like the first game was pretty fun. It was sort of a different game than we were expecting because it wasn't like this great pitcher's duel. Both teams scored two runs in the first inning. Yeah. Game two, as somebody who's rooting for uh, the Nationals, and we'll get into why that opinion intensified in a little bit, mm-hmm. was fun just because they won by a lot, but it was not like a, a thrilling game. And then the last three games started out moderately close and then just kind of got away from Washington. And right. Now they're on the uh, the brink of elimination. Though they have Steven Strasburg pitching. So we'll see yeah. what happens. And it sounds like, um, so when he was scheduled to start last, was a game was a game five that, that Max Scherzer was scheduled to start and got scratched? Yeah, Scherzer was scheduled to start game five. Uh, it ended up being started by Joe Ross, who is... Brother of? Brother of St. Louis Cardinals legend. A legend. Tyson Ross. Tyson Ross didn't play on the Cardinals long, but he did hit a home run, and he's a pitcher. He did. Was that last year that he played for the Cardinals? It would have been 2018, yeah. Yeah, I I, I already forgotten about it. So the Cardinals did I, – I didn't look this up. I should have. The Cardinals didn't have any pitchers hit home runs this year. He might be the last pitcher that hit a home run for them, which would be incredible. Like, you know, Mark Ruzalonic's the last Cardinals to hit for the cycle kind of way. Uh-huh. 
Uh huh. Yeah. That'd be very good. We re- yeah, we didn't have a pitcher hit a home run, which is sort of odd because there were a bunch of them, if I'm remembering right, that hit home runs in 2018. Yeah, like, I mean, there the were like Cardinals, there were like five the candidates. Like you have Wainwright, who's conventionally been one of the better hitting pitchers. You have Miles Michaelis, who in his first game as a Cardinal crushed a home run in the walk. Yeah. Carlos Martinez hit his first one in 2018. I was actually there for that. It was a day game at home. Um, did John Gant hit two? Am I remembering that right? I believe he had two, and those were the first two hits he had in, like, yeah. the at-bath or something. Yeah, you can't hit a lick usually, but just ran into two of them. Um, Austin Gomber didn't, but I feel like he had, like, at least one RBI double, maybe. I could be remembering that wrong. Yeah, I can't say I remember that too clearly. I think that was one of the games I was at, because um, I remember we'd sniped uh, some seats in the bleachers, and he... And he uh, I thought it was Austin Gobber. I remember whatever pitcher was pitching that night hit one over um, the head of the center fielder. Yeah, I'm not positive I've actually seen a pitcher home run live, it, which seems like I would have because I go to a decent number of games, but I'm pretty sure I haven't. Carlos, <laughs> Martinez, Carlos Martinez last year is the only one I can think of off the top of my head, but I bet there's been more. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that one happened when I was – like younger and just don't remember it. Yeah. I went to a lot less games back then. So yeah, I'm not sure. But so anyway, um, when I say the world series has sucked so far, like the actual game results are a low part of why it sucked because uh, the, the main story that's taken over. Yeah. Been living under a rock was so following the ALCS, which the Houston Astros won, They've won that since we last recorded an episode. Um, what happened in the ninth inning in that game, to go all the way back, was that Roberto Ozuna, who we uh, referenced in the, uh, the previous episode, who has previously been suspended for domestic violence, gave up a two-run home run to DJ LeMayhew. Even though I was, yeah. even though I was rooting for the Astros over the Yankees because I mean it's the Yankees, yeah. I was still pretty happy to see that Ozuna had blown the save. But then the next half inning, or all this Chapman gave up a two-run home run to Jose Altuve. Oh, yeah. Wasn't that a wonderful inning of baseball? Roberto yeah. Zuna and Aldis Chapman getting getting crushed just one after the other. That was so great. And, like, I don't have a strong opinion on DJ LeMahieu either way. Like, he's fine, but he's just a guy. Yeah. Jose Altuve is one of the most likable players in baseball. Genuinely, he is, yes. So having him hit a home run off for Aldis Chapman was fantastic. We have two guys who have these really ugly cases of domestic abuse. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so the assistant general manager for the Houston Astros, who I admittedly had never heard of before the story broke, but uh, Brandon. And why would you? Yeah. Yeah. Brandon Taubman, um, after the game, amidst a celebration, I, I don't know what his blood alcohol content at the time of these comments was, but it's not an excuse either way. No, there, I don't think there is a level high enough to excuse what he did. Yeah, I mean. You know, alcohol is not going to make you say horrible things you don't believe. It's a truth serum. It's not. Right. And uh, so what Brandon Taubman did was he went up to a small group of female reporters who were wearing domestic violence wristband or wristbands, braces. I'm not sure what term specifically was the one that was used, but some sort of indicator of um, sort of an anti-domestic violence Cause, but you would think would be a pretty universally accepted, hey, domestic violence is bad. That is a yeah. cause to take up. But Seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? It does. 
Uh, speaking of no brain, uh, Todman then went up to them. That's good. That's good. And started yelling, um, thank God we got Ozuna, which is a strangely timed comment. <laughs> really weird, really timed after yeah. he just nearly blown it, especially. Yeah, thank, yeah. thank God we got, got this guy that gave up a two-run home run to DJ LeMayhew. It nearly uh, prevented us from punching our ticket to the World Series tonight. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but it was a very strange sort of levels to it because like that comment is bad enough, but I feel like if he had like gotten out ahead, like if he got out ahead of it, he could have like sort of rationalized it and you might've gotten some sort of like moderate punishment, but it wouldn't have cost him his job or anything. But instead the Houston Astros, rather than condemning the comments and saying they were looking into the matter or anything like that, pretty unequivocally said that the story had been fabricated and yeah, it was um, to use a trotted out far too often term fake news for all intents yeah. purposes. Yeah, and yeah, that and it didn't uh, didn't go over well. Though it was one of it was one of the worst responses to a negative um, PR story that I'd ever seen um, a pro sports organization put out. I just I wonder how many levels of clearance that had to go through because it's completely bizarre. Like not that it's good. When a story like this breaks um, and a team responds with just the usual platitudes, kind of what you were re- referring to, like um, we uh, we're looking into the matter. We'll have uh, we'll have a response later when we know more details. Like not that that's much better, because I think we pretty well knew what it was. But like people expect that to turn around and say and instantly go to the whole thing's been made up is truly, truly wild. And again, I just wonder how many people signed off on this. Because by by no means I, I just can't believe anybody thought that that was a good idea, especially since it clearly seemed to not be like what they were saying clearly seemed to not be the case. Like this seemed like it's absolutely seemed like it happened. Yeah, and Tottenham eventually put out a, a statement that was basically the worst kind of like apology statement you could. Po- yeah, every check mark of an indicator of a really bad apology statement. He did the sort of sorry if you were offended. Oh God! <laughs> I'm sorry for the actual offensive thing. He, that's like that, that. That's like the worst. He, he did something. He did something that I consider like arguably like more like uncomfortable, which is that he mentioned that he's a father. Yeah, it doesn't make because things better because there's no history in the world of you know, fathers being okay with abuse. What? Yeah, like what? Because, like, because what now trying to prove. Now we've gone from, you know, this this guy whose like family situation we don't think about being um, not only, you know, okay with domestic abuse, but seeing but like someone who like flaunts um, domestic abuse in the faces of women. But now we see that person also has children of his own, which um, absolutely does not make things better. It cuts the other way. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's probably very little correlation between you know, whether he has children or whether what he did was right, because regardless of whether he had children before I knew whether he had children, I was still like, okay, that's a really creepy thing to say. You shouldn't do. Absolutely. Yeah. Seems like a, seems fairly self-explanatory to me. Um, eventually. So later in the week, this would have been the day of game three earlier in the day. The Astros had announced that, um, Coven was I'm not sure if he resigned or like was forced to resign. He was fired. Right. I think he was actually fired. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, it was going to happen eventually. I think as soon as the story broke, it was pretty 
clear that <clears throat> their, like eventual result was going to be that he was no longer going to be in this position. Mm-hmm. And um, man, did, like I, I think people were probably going to be generally rooting for the Nationals in the World Series anyway. Like even independent of the fact that they had Roberto Zuna in the first place. Yeah, just because the Nationals have never won the World Series, there was sort of this underdog story. The Astros just won two years ago. Yeah, very, very, yeah, very it's few people. Yeah, I mean, in most circumstances, people without knowing anything else will root for um, the role that the Nationals are playing. You know, the team they want to see a team win their an organization win their first, um, especially when it's some against someone who's just won and then like this juggernaut of a team. Um, you know. On paper and, you know, in practice, I think one of the best teams that's been put together in recent times going up against the Nationals, who are a good team in their own right. But people like seeing the juggernaut fall. That's just what they do. Um, but, yeah, they, they really kind of they really solidified that. And I think we should draw a distinction here because, I mean, you and I have both made objections to – you know, sport, sports writers in cer- certain circumstances, you know, kind of moralizing the choice of, of who to root for. Um, mainly when we say when there was the story a few years ago when it was the Cardinals and Dodgers in the NLDS um, and there was the Deadspin article and more on Deadspin later. Um, but, um, you know, uh, for very different reasons, um, we we saw that um what even happened? It was someone who was wearing like a Darren Wilson shirt or something like that. Yeah, there, there uh, was a uh, some random idiot wearing a a. It was like a homebrew Darren Wilson shirt, something like that. If if I remember yeah. right. I, the, the the sort of the short version of the story is that there was this group. Of, this was in 2014, so it was a few months after the um, the Michael Brown's death. And which, if you, if you don't know about that story, you can look it up. It's way too long of a story to get into here, but yeah, but. There were protests about um, police violence and what have you outside Bush Stadium. There were also Cardinals fans who were coming out of the stadium who were getting into confrontations with them. Which, first of all, if you want to say that the people who are getting into the confrontations who are leaving the stadium are bad, that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. But why do they classify as, like, as the Cardinals fan representatives, whereas the people... You know, very frequently wearing Cardinal stuff who are doing the protesting don't count. Yeah, and the whole thing, I mean, two points, two very obvious points on this. One, why does it matter what their team affiliation is? And yeah, two, like, e- like even if you do care about that, which I don't know why you would, why do you draw the line that way? I mean, just as a very, you know, an example that, you know, you'll probably hear and you'll say is stupid. And yes, it is. And that's kind of the point. Um, I was not living in, in St. Louis when this had happened. I didn't move to... Like I, I always lived in the St. Louis area, but I didn't actually move to um, St. Louis until uh, summer of 2015. Um, a couple years ago, whenever the Jason Stockley verdict happened, and there was a, you know, there were similar protests against uh, police violence and protesting the decision that was made. Um, on the first day of that, I so I lived in downtown. The first day of that, um, I was there for those protests in downtown, and you know, I was, you know, clearly on the side of the protesters, and I was wearing you know, Cardinals gear and I saw other people who were, but, you know, at the same time, the riot cops that I, you know, kind of stared into the face of, I'm sure they rooted for most of the same teams I did. And why should that matter? The answer is it doesn't. Um, so that's a circumstance where I say, and, and the Deadspin article that was dropped 
um, kind of, you know, shone a light on what happened. And I think it was absolutely right, you know, fair of them to shine a light on what had happened there, because that's, you know, a a story involving um, the baseball that's going on right now um, or was going on at that point. It was mostly that it was punctuated with go Dodgers. Yeah, I Um, I am 100% agreement that the article was completely fair because like it was until that point. Even if somewhat tangentially a sports story, it was right. going on outside of the game. And I wish I had pulled up because they, they actually published like a follow up, like letters that were written in. And one of the the messages that was written in was by our friend Alex Fritz. Um, and he really outlined, I think, very well and very fairly and um, level headedly why that particular angle of how they were publishing the story was wrong. Because now you basically trivialized what's actually going on and you've made it all about you know, I hate using this this term, but the sports ball. Um, you made it all about one team versus another team, when really it's about you know the struggle for these various you know people pursuing actual justice. Um, so, with all that being said, I think a difference here is since this actually is something that happened within the Astros organization. Yeah. Um. You know, it's. It shows that there there is definitely a venom within that organization. Um, obviously, they fired Brandon Taubman, who was um, at least so far the most outwardly, you know, poisonous of, of uh, the most outwardly poisonous in that organization. But based on one, the response that they put out when the story broke, which was surely not done by Taubman unilaterally, I think that's obvious. Um, I, I mean, it's clear that, that there's something – I mean, that organization um, has a lot of problems uh, internally and has and, and has gone about this in completely the wrong way. I mean, they did fire Taubman, but I think um, had there not been like massive public outcry both to the story and then even bigger to the response, that probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah, and I should say that I don't think that like – People who are like lifelong Houston Astros fans yeah. are still rooting for the Houston Astros in the World yeah. Series. I don't think they're doing anything wrong. I th- Agreed. Yep. I think that if the shoe were on the other foot, while I would be very embarrassed that this was happening to my team, I would still hopefully end up rooting for them. Which you could argue that I shouldn't be, but yeah, but that I you know, great and I would, so I'm not going to. Sports fandom is inherently irrational, um, and you know I. I've thought about what if I was in that circumstance. I think knowing myself, I would kind of just withdraw from the entire situation and just like maybe not watch. Um, that would be the most I could do. I'm not going to like, I'm not going to jump ship and start like if it was the, you know, I'm not going to jump ship and start rooting for the other team in the series because like, what does that do? You know, why is, why is me rooting against this team that I, that I liked, you know, how is that accomplishing anything? Um, but yeah, I think your point's correct. Like, um, I have a, I have a good friend, uh, named Zach who I went to college with and now lives in St. Louis, who's always been a huge Astros fan. I mean, he has clearly seemed from what I can tell bothered by this whole situation, but is still rooting for the Astros. That's fine. Yeah. Um, but for the average person to say like, we, you know, this causes us to want the Astros organization to lose even more. I think that's very rational because oh, it's, it's absolutely right. It's, this is a, I think a problem organization and all organizations, you know, sports organizations have problem. I don't, there's not a flawless one. You're just not going to find it. Um, this seems even worse than what we usually see. Yeah. One take that I've seen floated about, which is, I find to be an extremely just 
not well thought out take is the idea that this is like caused by the fact that the Astros are a very like analytically inclined organization. So I, I was wanting to get to this because yeah, I've also, I've not seen it much. It's just a, a particular sort of online person who says this, yeah, I mean, but, but go ahead. I should say that the, I think there's something to the idea that the Astros are not viewing things like through a prism of like personality that they just, right. you know, Ozuna has what his stats are. They saw right. that he was available for cheap from Toronto because of his suspension. They took advantage of that. Right. And I think my point is less that I think that like that analysts are the cause. I think that I mean, it's, it's hard to even articulate because it just seems so abundantly obvious that like front offices have been horribly regressive on these sort right. of issues forever. Right. This is not a thing that just came up overnight. It's not as though in the sixties and seventies, there was just no culture of right. sexism or violence against women or anything like that going on. It's just that that stuff got swept under the rug. Like I think, yeah, I think we're if anything in a better situation now because we're at least being honest and open about what the problems are. Yeah, and I I, I think there's a there's an argument there's a point to be made um, here about the Astros in particular, and you were you were hinting at this a little bit. Um, that what drives them to get somebody like Roberto Azuna and then, you know, so callously defend that um, is what belies that is, is the sort of cynicism um, in that organization that is so data driven that they, that they strip context out of everything. I don't know if that's really what's behind it, but you can certainly craft that argument. That being said, making that argument does, overlook what the broader problem is and the problem is that that cynicism that's not uniquely you know conducive to to bringing in bad players who are very bad people like this it's more that this is something that like teams have always um overlooked problems with players especially when it's it's marginalized um individuals who are being um you know in this case, victimized by another person that, you know, have been willing to overlook domestic violence, um, you know, racism, you know, completely backwards politics on the parts of um, players and, and people within the organization um, because they see it as a better way to win. Rather, I mean, this is just a the cynicism in the Astros organization that's behind this, if that really is what's behind this is yet just another manifestation of that. I mean, it's just another way for teams to overlook these problems. So, yeah, the, to, to, to use this moment, I think, as a moment to get in your anti-sabermetrics um, take, even if there is some underlying truth to that, um, but only in the limited sense, I, don't, I think that's wildly missing the point. Yeah, I think that the best argument you could make against sabermetrics through like the prism of what's happening here is now, and this should have been obvious to anyone all along is that, you know, advanced stats don't necessarily mean humanity. Yeah. Totally unrelated. Like I think what the Astros do and I think what they do, you know, is smart in terms of if your sole goal is to accumulate players. And like I wrote, I wrote about this this morning. There seems to be this like growing sentiment of, you know, let's not go too overboard on attacking the Astros. And it's like, no, you actually should. Like this. Yeah, attack them all you want. Like if you're gonna acquire a Roberto, you know, you're if the Yankees, you know, acquire Aroldis Chapman, 
this should be brought up as often as we see fit because otherwise right. what's the like what's the punishment yeah it's it's these are organizational failures whether those players play well or not the fact that the fact that that these players can do these things and not only get away with it um i mean no team is obligated to sign or bring into their organization any particular player at any particular point. It's not a matter of whether you think these players should be, you know, banned from baseball entirely. Um, but from a from the perspective of a franchise, like even if you don't think that, there's 29 other teams just stay away from it entirely. Um, I happen to think that there's no place for these two particular players in baseball that we mentioned. Um, but yet the, the the Astros in this case were we're willing to sign Roberto Ozuna knowing all this. Um, sorry, did they sign him or did they trade for him? I can't remember. They traded for him. And yeah. part of the reason they were able to get him for a relatively low cost, and the same goes for the Yankees whenever they acquired him from the Reds initially, was because, was like specifically... Right, yeah. The, the in, Ozuna's, yeah in Ozuna's case, the Blue Jays were not, you know... I mean, look, look at however you want. I don't, I don't want to, you know, without knowing anything else, I don't want to give the Blue Jays too much credit. Um they either didn't want this person in their organization or they just didn't want to deal with a PR nightmare, one or the other. Well, I mean, uh, the, the Astros were still, or the, sorry, the Blue Jays were still doing this for their own best interest because they could have just released Ozuna. Like, they didn't that's right. to yeah. trade him. Right, they yeah. Let him serve out a, a decent chunk of his suspension and then traded him. Yeah. So, yeah, it's that the point that, that you brought up um, that people were making, there is, there are, elements of truth to it but when you take it to its next logical conclusion it does kind of fall apart which is to say like well if the astros were an organization that like let's say cared about rbis more (laughs) than um then surely looking at a player's like wrc plus um would they not would they not have gone and gotten roberto ozuna i think it's it's yeah, and Roberto Ozuna gets a lot of saves too. It's not like he's a player. Yeah. Like he's not really a player. I think of as being like a sabermetric darling anyway. He's just like a generally considered by all parties to be a very good pitcher, with the obvious caveat that he's also gross, and any team that acquires him should be you know, ridiculed for doing so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it, whatever cynicism is involved in the Astros organization um, that caused them to target Roberto Ozuna. As I said, it's just it's just yet another way for teams. It's yet another reason that teams have had for overlooking these things that they should not overlook. It's not, you know, the the fact that the Astros organization is so analytical. That's not the disease itself. Um, rather, this is just one other symptom of what the broader disease is, and that is that people in our society in sports is especially bad about this are allowed to get away with these sort of things that people will make excuse um, will make excuses for uh, these sorts of actions um, when their own, when their own organization stands to benefit, especially when the people on the wrong side of the situations are, um, you know, women, racial minorities um, and other, other marginalized people. It's just, it's a problem that's, that's not, if teams stop using analytics, it's not a problem that's ever going to go away. It existed long before then. Um, you know, it, it's it's a disease. It really is. And it's something that needs to be – we need to look at what the actual problem is. 
Yeah, and this like just to say it again, like this was an issue that existed long before baseballs right baseball existed. Right. Like it, it's not like sexism was just invented in the last, you know, however many years. It's been around since you know, the dawn of humanity. And yeah. you know it's been a it was it was a rough story that baseball has had since before before the series even started. Uh, before game two of the series, another story broke, which is not directly related to the World Series, but it sort of was impossible to ignore. Um, Rob Drake, who is a uh, hire in Major League Baseball, he famously got into a conversation with Yadier in 2011, mm-hmm. which caused Molina to be suspended for uh, bumping into him. Yeah. Um, yeah. He tweeted, I'm reading this directly from an article uh, from ESPN.com. Yes, please read the tweet verbatim. <laughs> well, Technically, the tweet is like cut off a little bit, but you'll, you'll get the the idea of it. Uh, Drake tweeted late Tuesday that he planned to buy an AR-15 rifle, quote, because if you impeach my president, my president in all caps, if you impeach my president this way, all caps again, you will have another civil, spelled C-I-V-A-L, war, three exclamation points, hashtag um, MAGA 2020. So... Mm-hmm. I mean, besides, you know, whatever your thoughts on you know, gun violence are, you know, whether or not AR-15s should be legal, you know, very clearly referencing, you know, potential for violence based on if a political outcome that he doesn't like happens. And um, the tweet was quickly deleted and he um, issued an apology for it. I think it was either later that night or early the next day. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And and we're probably not going to talk about this as much as we talked about the Astro story. Like to me, this like the apology was necessary. First of all, but second of all, yeah. the apology more or less hit the right notes that you want out of the apology. He was right. Like he seemed to understand what the problem was. The problem wasn't, and you would see this take as the story broke. This idea that it was because he was expressing like conservative political views. No, the problem is that like Trevor Bauer does that all the time, and no, yeah. he can get suspended or have his job threatened yeah he blocks me on twitter usually yeah but uh but like trevor bauer also isn't threatening gun violence or don't think yeah rob drake he didn't say sorry i have sorry for offending you which was which was nice um i mean it didn't totally make up for it for me just because of of how over the top what he said was um and i don't know how deeply political you want me to get um but i you know just to kind of tiptoe up to the line um what's i mean it would be worrisome if uh if you know when anybody says this under any circumstances but in particular the fact that this particular train of thought that there has been in this country um recently in particular you know a lot of right-wing inspired violence (laughs) um yeah a lot of people doing this exact thing that he said um, that he might do. Um, you know, it seems like it, it seems like there's been, you know, 20, 30 examples. I don't know actually how many, that's just what it feels like um, this year alone um, of people who commit acts of violence. And then um, the reason, you know, if it's found that they made a manifesto of any sort, a lot of times they're not always, but a lot of times they're, thought process behind this is something we'll say of the same tone as what Rob Drake said. So it's worrisome that, that he would even go to this place in the first place. Um, uh, you know, definitely 
callous, definitely didn't read the room, but, you know, worrisome that, I mean, it's good that he said that, yes, the problem with what I said was how violent it was, because that was the problem with it. I think, you know, even me being as, as not, you know, disliking um, the president of the United States as much as I do, you know, I wasn't going to flip out about Rob Drake being a, a MAGA guy. I mean, it's not something that I would have ever thought about, but uh, it was right of him to acknowledge that the issue people took with it was the violence. Uh, I still don't like that he even went there in the first place. So, yeah. um, I mean, I, it sort of is one of those stories that I don't think needs to necessarily like linger forever. Like he's, like, I think he's probably not going to lose his job over it, and I'm perfectly fine with that. Yeah. But if he gets some sort of fine or, like, I would per- I'd personally be okay with him just being put on a, like, very, very um, tight leash going forward. Because yeah. It's, like, if you tweet something like this again, you're gone. Oh, yeah. Like, it's very, um, it's very uh, difficult to live that one down. And, like, the two of us, I don't think anyone who's listening to this, if you've listened to previous episodes or if you've, like, met us or read any of our writing or anything like that you know it's not surprising that our you know our politics are sort of like left of center to put it lightly yeah but like there seems to be this and it's sort of taken effect again not only with these two stories but with recent events like you uh, previewed earlier with uh deadspin Mm -hmm. idea of like stick to sports keep politics out of sports it's another one of the big events that's happened during the World Series is that uh, President Trump was shown at Game 5 of the World Series in Washington and was profusely booed during it. Yeah, yeah. And, like, I think, like, I understand stick to sports in the sense that, like, we're not, as a baseball blog, going to start writing about, like, the presidential debates, for instance. Right, right. You know, if, if some, if, you know, a presidential candidate says that, you know, they have this idea for, you know, health care or, or prison reform or whatever. Mm-hmm. You might have thoughts on it, but that's not like our lane. Right. Like stlbullpen.com. But at the same time, like say a candidate said they wanted to like legalize and streamline sports gambling. Right. Like that's a relevant sports issue. Like they're not, yeah. not every issue is just sports or just pop. Yeah. I mean, I mean, an example just this afternoon, um, one of the two big, you know, kind of a, you know, I won't say parallel storyline because they had nothing to do with each other. But what was going on at the same time as the continuation of the Deadspin story we're going to get to um, was the NCAA approving um, a resolution to allow college athletes to benefit from their likeness. And I mean, that is is a story that clearly I mean, it's about sports, but clearly goes into into things that are much, much deeper than that. Um I mean, it's less obviously partisan than like, you know, booing a president, for instance. Sure. Like, yeah. people are going to generally be okay with booing him if they don't like his politics, and you know, the opposite if they are more fond of it. But you know, at the same time, like, you can't separate the fact that it's still a political issue. Yeah, and and this is the thing with sports, because yes, sports for a lot of people are used as a form of escapism. I think you know, probably ourselves included, but at the same time. You know, it, there, sports is an institution. Um, it's something that a lot of people pay attention to. A lot of people invest emotional well-being in. And it's an area that, I mean, it crosses into political and social issues all the time. It always has. Um, 
Yeah, like like Major League Baseball has like an antitrust exemption. Like they don't yeah. tax this. Like it's very right. clearly like written into like law mm-hmm. that it's this and it's impossible to separate that or like publicly financed stadiums. Right. Like politics and baseball and, and sports in general are always going to go hand in hand. So while I understand why people want to just watch a game and not think about sort of the politics, like, for instance, if you're going to watch, I'm, I'm going to guess that during game six of the World Series, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm going to guess they're probably not going to discuss, like, the way Minute Maid Park was financed or anything like that like, yeah. during the actual game itself. But I think a lot of the people who say that they want sports as a diversion generally are people that don't want to think about these issues at, at any point. Yeah. And it's just sort of them saying, I just don't want to talk about it, which is fine. But at the same time, if you're stopping other people from talking about it, yes. or everyone's going to just kind of, you know, get run through the ringer by, right. by these enormous, like, multi-billion dollar businesses, which every single baseball team is, or I think yeah. the least valuable baseball team on the open market at this point is probably worth at least close to a billion. I don't remember the exact numbers from the recent sales of teams. Yeah, yeah I understand the, um, I understand this, you know, the, the sentiment from people that they want to watch sports and, and yeah, not think about the things that are going on in the world. And, and even to say that sports is where they go to get away from those things when those things are bothering them. I understand that perfectly well. And I think it's, it's perfectly fine as well for people to themselves not want to bring the outside world into it. But at the same time, what they have to understand is, you know, sports, at the end of the day, it's something that involves a lot of human beings. You know, it's about particular human beings doing these things. It's people that are the ones actually doing the sports. It's people who are in attendance. It's people who are running these teams. And at the end of the day, what politics is, and this is sort of a message that gets lost, unfortunately, a lot of times now, um, politics is... I mean, it's what happens to people. It's about the effects that are had on people um, whenever whenever governments and other entities do particular things. It is impossible to keep those two things from intersecting. It exists in a world in our world, and it's too big to keep completely out of um, the overwhelming thing that is politics. Um, and I mean, that's I know that's an extremely like abstract description. Of, of what we're getting at but regardless you know if you don't want your if you don't want your politics and your sports mixing on a personal level that's okay i'm not going to blame you for that i understand the escapism aspect of it um but yeah like you said when you when you don't want anyone else to bring those two things together when they are inevitably already intertwined um then yeah i, I mean at, at that's one way of looking at it that for some people it's legitimately that they're just missing the point. Um, but, and this is probably sort of where we're going to be going when we dive deeper into this Deadspin story is that um, for other people and for other actors, it's for more nefarious purposes. They want to say stick to sports because they are personally, they and their interests are personally inconvenienced by the intersection of sports and talking about politics, especially when, um, the particular ways that politics is discussed with sports um, uh, do not align with what they think. Yeah, 
And while you were talking, for instance, I have the 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 base the baseball game going on in the uh, in the background on mute, and like the national anthem was sung. Like that's inherent. Mm-hmm. That's like inherently right. a political right. thing, but it's a thing that's been normalized. And like right. I don't really have strong opinions on them playing the national anthem or whatever. And I can see the argument against it, but it doesn't bother me that they do. But like it's a normalized thing. Like we just don't think of it as being political. So you know things that are sort of you know, questioning conventional wisdom are the things that are really the things that are going to get criticized rather right. than any allusion to you know, politics. Like the fact yeah. that, you know, it's, you could go, you know, there's things that happen at baseball games and really in any walk of life that are you know, tied into politics or history or, or something of that effect. Right. You don't even think about it as being political just because it's always been there, so you don't think about it. And, right. And you have more of a political science background than I do, so you said it a lot better than I do, but that's, I pretty much agree with you. So I'm going to piggyback off of your points. Yeah, it, it, I mean, these are not new things. I mean, the 1968 Summer Olympics um, with uh, the athletes putting their fists up and uh, – um, I forget where the where the I think they were Mexico City. In Mexico City, yeah. yeah. Um, and then going back even further to uh, you know Jesse Owens' performance at the Olympics um, in Germany under the whenever uh, Hitler was um, in control. I mean, there were I'm sure there are lots of others, you know. But I I can see to put it this way, the, the kind of the sort of person who is insisting on stick to sports now is the same sort of person that would have said stick to sports. Whenever the Brooklyn Dodgers signed Jackie Robinson, they would have used that same excuse, which is asinine, and we know that now. But that same sort of attitude, I'm sure, I'm sure there are people at that time criticizing it. Were saying, you know, you're making this sports thing all about social justice. Why rattle the cages? And I mean, for anybody who is among the class that I mentioned, that is, you know, not saying that sort of thing for any nefarious purpose, but is legitimately just missing the point. Just, just consider the fact that that is. When we look back on these things, that is what you're going to be um, – that that's going to be how you're viewed. Yeah, and it, it sounds like uh, you're sort of chomping at the bit to talk about the uh, the deadspin turns of events. So I think you might have a better <clears throat> capacity to explain what happened than I do. So I'm gonna... Well, I, I've been – I haven't been online as much as I usually am, which is, you know, not saying much. Constantly um, and um, – in the last couple of days, from what I understand, so it's a continuation of a very of a story that's been going on for a long time. I mean, Deadspin. Basically, I, I think there's a direct line. Hopefully, I'm not getting this wrong between um, Gawker's, um, you know, kind of shocking loss in the Hulk Hogan lawsuit um, to Deadspin. Who who does own Deadspin now? What what group is it? Is it Gizmodo that owns? It's- it's well, Gawker. It does been still under the Gawker umbrella, I believe. But right, it's like the it's by a new group of like venture capitalists who. Yeah, it's it's zombie Gawker. It's not what it used to be. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, I think we saw. I don't read. I never read Gawker as much, but I think there were signs that the the tone of it had changed under the new group. Um, but from the way I understand the story just kind of by by halfway following along with it and correct me any any details that I get wrong there was a was it a leaked like email that went out to um deadspin writers 
that was essentially saying don't write about politics anymore, you know, stick to sports, basically. Yeah, there was an edict that had said that, you know, this is the sports site. We have other websites for yes. politics. Just, yeah. uh, which, I mean, if they want to criticize, like, there will every once in a while be articles that have literally nothing to do with sports. Yeah. Which I, I should say on the side are probably some of my favorite Deadspin articles. But That's that's part of what makes it so charming. Yeah. But, but some might disagree with that. But, yeah. Like, it's impossible. Like, for instance, there was a, a very good article that went up earlier today from David Roth, who's, like, maybe my favorite, like, yeah, me too. working so, writer. So good. Like, I feel like every time I write something that's, like, not specifically about sports, I'm trying to sound like him and failing. Yeah. But, yeah. but it was an article that was about the the booing of uh, President Trump at game, I think I said game, it's game five, right? Yeah. On yeah. Sunday. Yeah. And... Like, it's impossible to tell that story without, like, getting into the politics of it. But at the same time, like, it happened at a Major League Baseball game. Like, he was joined in a luxury box by the owner of the Houston Astros. Like, yeah. this is a sports story. This is part of, like, yeah. whoever wins the World Series <clears throat> is going to be invited to the White House yeah. And, you know, based on precedent, there will probably be quite a few players that don't go to the White House, many of them for political reasons. And like whether you go or whether you don't go, it's a political gesture and you can't avoid that. And like if you want the two if you want the two stories to be completely divorced from one another, then it would involve teams never going to the White House, no matter who the president is, which honestly, I would not oppose. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> but that gesture itself would be viewed as the political gesture because it's something different. Yeah. Going to the White House is viewed as the normal thing. So even though it is by definition political, and even like whenever the Blues were at the White House a couple weeks ago, like political like political points were being made while they were there. Yeah. It's treated as just sort of part of the process. Yeah. Which is silly and it's always been silly and i'll admit that whenever presidents that i liked more than the current one were in office i always thought of it as like oh well you just go because um you know it's an honor and it's a cool thing to do and i've sort of gone the other direction on that and yeah you can call it my hypocrisy all you want i don't totally disagree with you on that but like it is a political gesture whether you intend it to be or not yeah so the, the, the name of the media conglomerate that I was trying to think of is G.O. Media that I think now um, I think now owns Gawker and by proxy uh, owns Deadspin. Um, there had been a few things going on with all this um, since they took over. One, this, this was not the first. This is definitely the more um, odious of the, of the changes that have been made. Um, like a lot of the writing up to this point really hasn't changed. They still kind of have a, a similar. I don't know that a, a ton of people have have um, left the site. I mean, they still have David Roth. They still have um, Laura Wagner. They still have Drew McGarry. Um, <clears throat> a lot of the a lot of the same people they always had. Um, and the, and David Roth in particular, I've noticed lately. Um, Laura Wagner. I've seen some of her stuff. I've never. 
I never read as much Drew McGarry, um, but I think it's been the same way. I've kind of just still been doing their own thing yeah. up until this point. They're, the one change that was installed that people hated, um, and with a lot of sites that are now under the umbrella of this media conglomerate, is the um, loud volume on autoplay video ads <laughs> that came up that uh, bothered the shit out of a lot of people. Um, Myself included. Yeah. Yeah, I hate that. Um, I hate it on any site that does it. Um, I, I, yeah, I think there's there's definitely. I think it really screws over people who are looking at these things on uh, at work. Um, but a lot of the you know cynical uh, corporations that own a lot of these media outlets now probably think that that's a good thing because you should be um, sticking to work anyway, which is crazy to think. Um, and maybe I'm projecting a little bit. Um, so that's one thing, but then there's also been um, a lot of tension anyway between the writers of Deadspin um, and uh, um, and this media company about um, – and I don't have the full details on this. I just knew that it was something that was going on about unionization. Um, so there's already tension that was going on. Um, so – the, this email, I think it was, that went around about sticking to sports, and there's um, – I'm kind of looking at the rundown on uh, awfulannouncing.com. Um, there was a – there was this email that went around saying this is a sports site, should stick to sports. It was leaked to uh, Maxwell Tanny of the Daily Beast, um, this email that said uh, – only cover non-sports topics where subjects touch on sports, which I, you know, if they were really following that, then kind of as you said, then um, like David Roth's story about um, the president getting booed at the baseball game would probably apply anyway. Um, yeah, but I think that's sort of where the problem lies. Is that yes? Like again, there are stories. Right, you can't actually strip it from that, which is the I, truth. I mean, there are stories that David Roth will write, in particular, that have absolutely nothing to do with sports. And if they want to get rid yeah. of those, while I would be sad because I enjoy those stories, I, I see their point. This has been that I think is the most sports because David Roth has done you know plenty of coverage of the president before this that had nothing to do with sports, and it, and it's great to read. And, and he writes um, actual sports stories, too. Yes, which yeah. Which are not absolutely. political, and they're yeah. also very entertaining. Yeah. And so on, uh, they, basically, they, this this email made the rounds. It got leaked. The Deadspin writers um, wanted nothing to do with it. Um, we're, we're completely, I mean, we're unabashedly um, non-compliant with it and said they weren't going to be compliant with it. I know um, some of the names that I, that I mentioned already, David Roth, Laura Wagner, Drew McGarry, kind of the figureheads on the site, um, came out and said like, yeah, this sucks. We're not doing it. You know, this is what our bosses think. Um, what was going before the latest update on the story this morning? Like I know people were pointing out, um, like some of the stories like old and new that were on the front page. Um, was it like the, was what was going on? Like the the site editors at Deadspin were like purposefully putting up on the front page like stories that had been run that had nothing to do with um polit that with politics or, yeah, or, or nothing to do with sports. I mean, yeah, and a lot of them weren't political stories either. Like Drew McGarry had a a very frequently read article. It was a very well written article that was about a brain injury he had. That, yeah, yeah, it wasn't about sports or politics. It was just sort of a personal reflection. Yeah, a lot of those stories were being put front and center. But I mean, 
that, that that's fine. Like personally, as somebody, and you know, Cardinals fans have obviously had a lot of friction with Dead in years. Well, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I was going to get to this at some point because I feel like for for our sake, we should we should probably make clear what our role on this is. But before that, yeah, the story. Someone posted a screenshot. Um, the the stories like the six stories that were at the top, and I think this was done intentionally by whoever whatever editor is making these decisions at Deadspin. Um, there was woman furiously shits on floor of Tim Hortons, throws it at employees, uh, brackets update. Um, that was from, uh, um, hopefully I'm not pronouncing uh, this person's name wrong, Samar Kalaf. Um, there was a post called The Adults in the Room by Megan Greenwell, um, which is basically about this topic. Yeah, um, Megan Greenwell, who doesn't write for Deadspin anymore. Yeah. She's former editor-in-chief. There was post from Barry Pachesky and more on him in a minute um, from the year in review. What did we get stuck in our rectums last year? Um, there too political, was too political of a story yes. to possibly cover. There was the night the lights went out by Drew McGarry, which you referred to. That's a brain injury post. Um, I don't know who wrote this one because the screenshot cuts it off, but a, a pro wrestling adjacent. That's what it's listed under the hateful life and spiteful death of the man who was Vigo the Carpathian. And then finally, an article that I loved when it was written that was just about politics. It was what was the name of that of that shit ass kid in the MAGA hat who um, basically just smirked in the face of the Native American protest. I've already forgotten this little weirdo's name. I guess it's I not. Know, I know the picture, but I don't know that I. Yeah, everyone knows the just the the total just teenage creep, you know, smirking in the faces. And the there's a whole lot of debate about what. There actually was, when I say debate, I mean there was a lot of disingenuous response. Laura Wagner wrote a an, an really, really great piece called Don't Doubt What You Saw With Your Own Eyes that I had shared, I think, pretty much on every platform saying, you know, what you see is what it is. A lot of times, you know, when racism manifests, it is just what it is. You don't need to overthink it, and if you do, you're missing the point, and you need to attack it that way. So those were the ones that were on the front page. Um before I go any further, yeah, we probably should address um, – because, I mean, we have been very critical of Deadspin in the past. Um, but just like for one partic- – like their coverage of one particular thing, and that is the attitude that a couple of their writers have had towards the Cardinals and the Cardinals fandom, which is sort of as we alluded to before. But Drew McGarry is the, the most guilty of this, but I think a couple of others um, – have, and, have, I, and I gotta say, I will defend the original Drew McGarry post on it because, like, I don't think it's necessarily like the best thing he's ever written by any means. But it's no. very much like a goofy, like, these are the reasons I hate the Cardinals, and it's mostly yeah. it's mostly because oh yeah, making fun of Will Leach because that's his former yes friend. yeah, and that's that is sort of a context that get, gets lost. As a lot of it is just dunking on his old friend, um, and also like Deadspin does like why you should hate like every single team. Post. so that's perfectly acceptable yeah and, and drew mcgarry writes those too every, yeah yeah and they're, and they're really good <laughs> yeah every nfl season he writes 32 posts including for the team he roots for about why your team sucks and yeah the hateable things about them yeah i've just always thought that that mcgarry and others who jump on this it's not as egregious as the best fans thing that we oh, talked wow, about last all. episode it's just kind of another exa- I, I i really think i don't like the way that they go out of their way to make serious issues kind of revolve around the sports aspect of it. Um, I don't think it's necessary. And I think they're kind of going out of their way to shit on, 
you know, this flyover country, it's just sort of that same attitude. Like this is what's going on in flyover country. Um, these people, it, it's just really condescending. I've always felt, it, it's um, sort of and I've got, I'm guilty of getting madder about it than I, than I, uh, than I ever should have. I'll admit that. Yeah. And it's sort of silly because like they, they really like drilled hard on the anti-cardinals thing from like 2013 yeah. to 2015. It went away for three years and then sort of started yeah. a little bit of comeback during the playoffs this year. I wonder what the correlation is there. Who's to say, really? Yeah, may, maybe they just wanted to make fun of the good team, which is why they started like really ramping up, like being harsh towards the Cubs over the last couple yeah. of years. Just a thought. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I've kind of been on the other end of that because I mean, some of their anti-Cubs stuff I've really enjoyed reading, but then I, you know, I kind of think like, am I being unfair <laughs> now that I'm on the other side of this? Yeah, um, their, their, their coverage of Stan Kroenke has been consistent throughout the years, and I've always yes. appreciated it. So, yeah, Drew McGarry, I've, I've said some, you know, um, untoward things about him over this. I'll, I'll say, first of all, that, you know, I was probably too harsh on them when I don't think that's what I was really mad about. Second, beyond that, I mean, Deadspin has always been a net positive by far of a of a yeah. website. Um, you know, not only the stuff that they're not only the great writers that they've had, the coverage that they do, they have they've had a lot of really good guest spots in the past. Um so it, it's an institution worth defending. Um, and beyond that, the the trial, the Hulk Hogan Gawker trial. And <laughs> if it's still up, I definitely recommend, if you haven't already, going back and um, watching the documentary they have on there about the Gawker Hulk Hogan trial. Trials of the Free Press, maybe, is what it's called. But it's very good and it outlines really the sort of sinister element, the involvement of Peter Thiel, how that lawsuit was just used as a proxy um, for this person who has more wealth than anybody should ever have and more influence than any, any private citizen should ever have, um, using this lawsuit and using, using, you know, Terry Balea, Hulk Hogan, whatever you think of him was, was, was kind of a stooge in all this, um, as a proxy to go through and take down an organization or a, you know, kind of a left leaning media organization that was critical of people like him and his interests. Um, and so all that draws a straight line to where we are now. The most recent update on all this was um, poor Barry Pacheski, um, longtime deputy editor, written almost 20,000 posts for Deadspin. Wow. It's crazy. Yeah. I knew he'd been around a long time. I did not know he had written 20,000 posts. Yeah, across 10 years. Um, I think – I don't know if he was the one behind putting the stories that were on the front page today on the front page. Um, they uh, – they straight up, according to his tweet, they straight up uh, fired him. His tweet, hi, I've just been fired from Deadspin for not sticking to sports. Um, the uh, GMG union, which is the union that represents Deadspin writers, their response was earlier today. Um, Jim Spanfeller, CEO of Geo Media, fired our colleague and longtime Deadspin deputy editor Barry Ch- Pacheski. This will not stand. We'll have updates soon. Um, the editorial director of geo media. Um, and again, this is all from the rundown that's currently on awful Um, yesterday I sent a memo to deadspin staff stating that our sports site should be focused on sports coverage. So we're already off to a good start. As I made clear in that note, sports touches on nearly every aspect of life from politics to business, to pop culture and more. We believe the deadspin reporters and editors should go after every conceivable story as long as it has something to do with sports. We're sorry that some on the Deadspin staff don't agree with that and uh, editorial direction and refuse to work within that incredibly broad mandate, which sucks. So um, 
So that's basically where we are. I don't know that there's been any updates since then. I mean, they've been wildly, you know, universally almost getting panned um, by the online media. I think you're leaving out Dave Portnoy of Barstool Sports, who quite enjoys the story. Yeah, longtime rivals, and I don't want to launch too much into an anti-Barstool screed, not because I don't want to, but because if I start, um, I'm not going to be able to stop. Um. But I, but there's there's sort of a thing to be said there because I mean in a vacuum, when you look at the content between the two, the quality of content on Deadspin and on Barstool is completely different. I mean most of Barstool is either like stolen content or just posting pictures of of sexy ladies. I mean that's kind of what it is. Yeah, and and I say, as much as people want to say that Deadspin doesn't stick to sports, Barstool never writes about sports. No, it's no, like what incredible, what, like that. I mean, this is just kind of the the most vile of the. But what about that thing they do, which is like every time a an attractive female teacher gets caught like molesting a student, they run a post about how hot she is. Yeah, like, that's, wh- where does that fall under this? Yes, this sexual predator is so attractive. Like, what do you? Right. But it kind of goes to say, like, not every single individual involved in Barstool is a right winger. But it is, I think, very clear to say that from the from the top. You know the people involved at the top of Barstool. It is more of a right-leaning. Well, I would, I would Portnoy in particular. Yeah, I agree that Portnoy is. I would say in general they're like at least openly like pretty apolitical. So that's why they avoid getting the stick to sports talk when they're not actually talking about sports. Right, but the, and yeah, and so there's that element of it. But even if we go deeper into it, what's the difference between what's happened with? Deadspin under the umbrella of Gawker and what hasn't happened to Barstool. You don't have people like Peter Thiel fighting proxy wars against Barstool because the type of constant content Barstool runs is not against the interests of people like Peter Thiel. That's sort of the reality. I mean, that's the bigger reality of it. But yeah, on an individual level, you're also correct that um, when they run that type of content, um, People don't don't have that same sort of attitude, and I I need a break for just a, a second. You can go on to your next thing. Um, Freddie, first Freddie update. He is sitting in his chair, and it appears that his claw is stuck in the fabric. So I need to go uh, get it out. This was a nice uh, a nice touch because this has been kind of a downer of a uh, show for the. It really last has. Time. Say something yeah, nice while I'm. It. Say something nice while I'm doing this. Well, what's nice is that all of the, you know, a lot of the Deadspin writers that we've mentioned at this point are very talented and. You know, if they end up losing their jobs over the fact that they're being resistant to these changes that are totally changing and ruining the website they write for, like, they'll, they'll be somewhere else. I don't want to even, like, throw out names of specific people, like, who could get conceivably get fired, but, like, every single one of them is going to end up writing somewhere. So, like, you as a, like, a savvy reader can still find these people. It, it may end up being... I mentioned this on Twitter a little bit, like what happened with Grantland, which was sort of a, a, a different dynamic. It wasn't because they were getting political. It was because Bill Simmons had a falling out with ESPN. And then ESPN, for no, for seemingly out of spite, shut down Grantland. And a lot of the writers, including Simmons himself, went over to The Ringer. And like all of those people who were at uh, Grantland, you can find their writing, except for Jonah Carey, but that's a completely different subject. Yeah. It's writing. Um, yeah. I missed the first part of what you said, but I'm sure it was nice. Um, I did get Freddy's Claw unstuck. That's good. I, was, I, I didn't say that many negative things about you during the time. You just have to listen to the podcast, too. Well, yeah. 
If he did, fair enough. Um, I also tossed a toy for him, but he's not in a playful mood at the moment. He's sleepy, so. Fair. Um, so yeah, this has been a little bit of a downer, but. Yeah, we've I was we've talked about a lot of we've been talking about like smart person stuff. Um, if you have nothing else, did you have anything else on this? I absolutely do not. I don't either. So maybe want to get into some dumb stuff. Yeah, let's um. So let's lighten this up. You know how we keep defending the whole uh, stick sort of stick to sports ethos as being this impossible <clears throat> sort of uh-huh. option. Uh-huh. Let's maybe talk about sports a little bit. We haven't done sure. that for a while. Sure. And we've really only like very much in passing even mentioned the St. Louis Cardinals during this podcast because there had right. been no Cardinals news over the last two weeks. Like what are right. we going to talk about other yeah. than now I haven't played I will say what I anticipate during a lot of these off season episodes, I don't think they're all going to be like this in that I think the tone isn't always is in fact often not going to be as serious as this one. It just so happens that there's been a lot of serious stuff within baseball and sports media to discuss lately. Um, but we will get this off topic during the off season <laughs> frequently. Yeah. I think we'll, we'll get uh, off topic, but there'll at least be like some sort of like free agent rumor or a trade rumor or something. And now it's just, there's nothing until the world series ends. Yeah. 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 However, um, we do have a, uh, a little segment here and this is, I'm sure, I'll put timestamps on the episode. People who don't want to hear us talking about like sports media are going to just fast forward to this part. So, hi everybody, welcome to the show. Yeah, we're gonna do a little bit of uh, trivia, which uh-huh. is uh, a, a segment that some people enjoy and some people don't enjoy. So I'm sure some people are bailing out right now. I personally have fun doing the segments about yeah. uh, trivia. So each of us have prepared a, a question or series of questions for the other one. We're not really keeping score in any particular way because we're not competing right. against anybody, but everybody who's listening certainly can play along. I'm going to defer to you. Do you want to read your question first or do you want to answer questions first? I will answer first. Okay. So this is a sort of a series of questions and there's not really a specific way to articulate like Carrie Robinson. I like your guess. He is indeed the last player to wear number zero for the Cardinals. <laughs> I think he. Uh, I think this is the second time I've, t- I've mentioned Kerry Robinson already, which is um, not enough. He attended Hazelwood West and played hockey. I believe was um, part of his story. Wow, I recall correctly. Okay, so here's what I did. I had a little bit of free time today, so I went to BaseballReference.com and I looked up various Cardinals playoff games in like our lifetime. So the first okay. playoff appearance, like you're a few years younger than I am, but both of our first playoff appearance was 96. Yeah. So I pulled up some um, some game logs on baseball reference. Oh, God. I'm going to tell you a playoff. <laughs> I will tell you. I'll tell you the year, uh, the series, and the game. And I'll tell you right ahead that every single one of these, the Cardinals won the game. Okay. So, and okay. they're pretty major games for the most part. I want you to, in as best of detail as you can, as far as describe the biggest play of the game by win probability added. For the <laughs> it, this like, is not going to go well. It but sounds I'm, impossible, and I'm thinking some of the early ones might be a little bit shaky. But I think that you're, I think you're going to do better than you think you are. All right. Let me start off with one that's probably might be a little bit too early for you to really like. Like I remember this, but I was seven years old when it happened, and you would have been like three or four, so even four. Yeah. So, um, so 1996 NLDS game three. 1996 NLDS game three. I'll tell you what team they were playing, if that would help you. 
Was it the Braves? No, they were playing the Padres. Okay. So and they won the game. So do you have any idea what the biggest play of that game was by win probability? So I'm, for any- I'm trying to because this this was too early. I don't. I have a very bad. I don't have a great memory in general. I have a very bad memory about things that happened a long time ago. So I, I will say I remember nothing about this game in particular. I'm sure my family watched it um, just because we watched all the games. Um, I'm trying to. I'm trying to remember who the hell all was actually on the 96 squad because my memories of the Cardinals kind of kickstart a couple years after this. Um, okay, so, go- I, so I'm going to just sort of take take some mercy on you on this one. Um, if you want to take a guess of who the batter involved and who the pitcher involved was, that might be a, a reasonable goal because I think that, like particularly if you think, I think the pitcher is actually probably easier to get if you consider – who they were playing and just the nature of win probability added. Oh God. Um, who is still on the, who I, I get the late nineties and the early nineties Cardinals really, really mixed up. Um, was Brian Jordan still on the Cardinals in 1996? Not only was Brian Jordan on the Cardinals, he is the player that got the hit. Okay, that was going to be my next guess was going to be Ray Lankford. So Brian Jordan, yes. um, did Brian Jordan hit a home run? He did hit a home run. Do you want to guess how many RBI the home run was worth? Was it a grand slam? It was not a grand slam. Okay, was a three-run home run? It was a two-run home run. Okay, well. <laughs> okay, do you want to guess who he hit it off of? Oh, boy. Well, the only pitcher I can think of specifically – from the Padres that I think, and I'm not just based on my timeline, was it off of Trevor Hoffman? It was. Okay. So it was in the top of the ninth inning of game three. He had a two-run home run to break a 1-1 tie. It took the win probability of the Cardinals from 50% to win to 92% to win. Nice. They ended up winning the game in nine innings, and they ended up sweeping the Padres. A bunch of very good players, like Ricky Henderson was on that team, Tony Gwynn, of course. Right. Yeah, I can think of MVP that year. Yeah, I can think of more of the of the position players for the Padres, but outside of Trevor Hoffman, who even pitched for the Padres back then? Um, I'm trying to think who would have been on that specific. I think like Joey Hamilton was around. I'm boy, I, that might have been when Kevin Brown was still there. I'm not positive, but there were some. It was it was interesting. So I went to San Diego last season. Oh, Bob Tewksbury and Fernando Valenzuela were both on that team. My goodness. Hmm. All right. Then. I would never, would never have guessed that. I, I know Valenzuela, who was 35 years old. It seemed like he would have been way older then, but yeah, future Cardinal Fernando Valenzuela at that point. Yeah. And yeah. went to San Diego in in 2018. They had a 20 year reunion of their team that made the World Series in 1998. And <laughs> besides like Tony Gwynn and Trevor Hoffman, there are some names that you haven't heard in a long time. Well, there there are several. There are multiple players who. Played for the Cardinals at some point. We already mentioned Bob Tewksbury, um, Ron Valone, yeah, um, and uh, Dustin Hermanson pitched for the Padres that season. Was Carlos Hernandez around the Padres yet? He is not listed on Baseball that, Reference. Might have been a little bit early for him. Yeah, their starting rotation was Joey Hamilton, Bob Tewksbury, Fernando Valenzuela, who were both thirty-five at this point, and then Andy Ashby. Okay. Yeah, Andy Ashby is like wow. one of the five greatest Padres ever by yeah. war, which speaks a lot to the Padres organization. Yeah. 
I think we've, I think we've talked enough about the Padres. Yeah. I have, I have a lot of these listed. So we got, Okay. I mean, yeah, let's move okay. on. So this is a game that if you didn't watch it live, I'm sure you were at least aware of at the time because you would have been 12, I think. So uh, 2004, mm-hmm. Championship Series Game 6. Do I need to tell you the opponent or do you got it? Remind me. Uh, 2004 NLCS would have been against the Houston Astros. That's what I thought, yep. Okay, so uh, give me as much detail as you can about the moment. If you want me to ask for prompts as far as like... Give me a little bit of a prompt, because the problem is I get this this series mixed up with a different series. So the 2004 NLCS Game 6, it was a... um, do you want to guess who the Cardinal batter was and who the Astros pitcher was? I'll give you the hint that it was the Cardinals on offense for the, for the moment. <clears throat> well, I mean, the, the best the best guess um, in any of these circumstances is going to be Albert Pujols. That is incorrect. Okay. I'll just run down. Was it was it Scott Rowland? It was not Scott Rowland. Was it Jim Edmonds? It was Jim Edmonds. Okay. I do re- I'm pretty sure I do remember this. Okay. It was Jim Edmonds. I can't – because I remember watching this game at home um, – um, what was Joe Buck's call? Was it I? Because I get this one a little mixed up with the David Freeze one. We are was this the we are going to game number seven call? Uh, Joe Buck did not call the game. Tom Brenneman called the game on Fox or on FX, I guess at the time. Oh, I, I think I think yeah, but I think that was his call. Tom Brenneman, we are going to game number seven. Yeah, I think as because it was Jim Edmonds had like this huge like uppercut swing as he often did, but even for him it was like an exaggerated uppercut swing and just. And just stepped right into it, it but I can't. But, I, but for the life, I can't remember who the pitcher was for the for the, the Astros. The pitcher's a challenge. I'll give you that. Do you want to guess what inning it happened in? It was it was the ninth, right? It was the bottom of the twelfth. Oh, bottom of the twelfth, yeah, because it was a walk off. Um, oh, who would who would the pitcher have been? I can't I can't even think of who it was. Was it one of their starters that they'd brought in maybe to pitch? The the pitcher was Dan Maselli. Yeah, I would never have guessed that. I, yeah. I do remember this moment because I remember watching it at home with my brother, and this is a super random moment. I think my brother and I had actually been like, um, like a, I don't actually, I'm not sure if this is true because we would have been a little old for this, but I think we might have been like wrestling on the floor or something like that because we we're, you know, the, and the game was on in the background, and then we just kind of stopped what we were doing and turned to the TV um, whenever we heard Tom Brenneman start going crazy. So I do remember that game. Yeah. It was a it was a two run home run. Uh huh. Albert Pujols was the guy that scored the uh, the other run. It, it moved the Cardinals from 64% to win the game to 100% because it was a walk-off. I, I can imagine it would be 100%, yeah. Okay. This one, I think, is a more challenging one, but we'll go with it anyway. The very next day, Game 7 of the NLCS, so also against the, uh, also against the Astros. It was in St. Louis. Was this one Scott Rowland? This one was Scott Rowland. I I remember this one. Was it there was a Scott Rowland? I know there was a big Scott Rowland playoff home run that was like just a pure line drive shot at Old Bush Stadium, barely got over the wall. I feel like this was that one, but again, I don't remember who the pitcher was. It was a home run. It was a. It was it was, it was a two run home run. It, it was. I also don't remember the inning, other than to say it was not a walk off. It was not. It was the sixth inning. Sixth inning. Yep. Uh, can I get a hint on who the pitcher was? The pitcher is a pitcher that you have definitely heard of and that every single person listening to this, I would assume, has heard of. Surely it wasn't Brad Lidge. It was not Brad Lidge. Yeah, I would think this so. Is, this is a pitcher that is considerably more famous than Brad Lidge. 
Uh, oh, was it Roger Clemens? It was Roger Clemens. Okay, yeah. And so I, yeah. They took the uh, Cardinals from 55% to 82%. Very nice. Yeah, I do remember that. I remember that was one of the – I don't – I didn't include this. I remember looking back because this was in consideration for – um, when I, th- like the first thing that I wrote for the site, the broadcast calls, I feel like Mike Shannon had a really good call of this. Um, but I couldn't find it. Um, I, but I do remember that happening cause that was one of the craziest I've ever seen a Cardinals crowd go. Um, they just went absolutely ballistic when he hit it. Line drive shot barely got over the wall. Um, but I do remember that happening. Did that knock Clemens out of the game or did he continue to pitch after that? I don't remember if it directly, that was around the time that Clemens. Yeah. Um, got pulled. That was a it was a very fun series that got large. It was overlooked nationally because Red Sox Yankees yes three zero comeback. I can't yeah. blame fans for focusing on that series, but it was just two really good series going on at once. Well, and beyond that, when people think of um, Cardinals Astros NLCS, they think about two thousand five and one particular moment of that more than they think about two thousand four. Uh, we may be getting to that moment very soon here. So two thousand five NLCS Game Five. I, I, yeah, I mean, I think I already know what this one is. I mean, this has got to be, this has got to be Albert Pujols, um, um, crushing Brad Lidge, right? With, with what kind of hit? With a home run over the freaking train tracks. What inning was it in? It was in the, it was in the, uh, ninth, the top of the ninth. Top of the ninth, yeah. With two outs. Do you remember how many runs of a home run it was? Yeah, three runs. David Eckstein and Jim Edmonds had scored as well. I actually didn't write down who scored. That sounds right, though. Because it, it was one, two, three. I think it was um, X. I feel I feel like it was Eckstein got a hit and then Jim Edmonds walked. It was either that or the reverse of that um, to bring up Pools because there were two outs already. Um, they both got on and it brought up Pools and really everybody should have seen what was about to happen coming. Yeah, it was um, a very exciting moment. It took the. This was I, I think it's the highest win probability that a. a one plays had in a Cardinals playoff game before it went from 8% to win to 81%, which is like freaking staggering that that was that big of a jump. But do you, I'd be curious to see if you don't have it, what the, what the percentage was sitting at um, when David Eckstein came up to bat with two outs and nobody on. I mean, it couldn't have been that much lower than 8% by definition, but. Okay. And just for now, we're, we're now having this problem again. Fred has, Jumped up onto my lap, and I've stopped him from doing it so far, but just know that he very, very badly wants to bat at my microphone. Are you so mad at him that you're calling him Fred rather than Freddy? Stern parent. You can call him by his middle name next. I don't think he has a middle name. I need to come I mean, up with I was going to say, if anybody has authority over this, I think I'm talking to that person right now. Uh, a fun fact about him was um, when he was – so where I got him from was there's a cat cafe in Maplewood called Mau House. And all the cats they have there, like, they go through this cat foster agency called Stray Haven where they take in and foster stray cats. Um, his name when he was at the cafe was Slingshot. Hmm. And I, I didn't I didn't care so much about not having a human name for a cat. I just didn't have a good way to shorten Slingshot. So he became Freddy slash Fred. So maybe that's his middle name. Maybe his middle name is Slingshot. Gotcha. All right. So uh, next moment. 2006 NLCS Game 7. Um, 2006 NLCS Game 7, it would have been um, Yadier Molina's home run off of, was it off of Billy Wagner? It was not off of Billy Wagner. Okay. Uh, who the, 
the pitcher was? I oh, I knew this at one point. Um, God, who is it? I, I'm not going to be able to think of it. I don't think it was Aaron Heilman. Aaron Heilman. Okay. Was, uh, what inning was it in? The, it was top of the ninth. Yes. Yeah, and how many runs was it? I think it was just one. It was a two-run home run. A two. Who else scored? I think it was Scott Rowland. I remember Sounds good. And of course the the and uh, I don't have it off the top of my head. Um, just go if anybody wants to see a great still photo with a very nice. I'm not going to spoil a very nice surprise hidden in the background. It's like an I spy of Yadier Molina um, actually catching um, the final strike from Adam Wainwright to finish that series off. Um, go ask our friend Chase Woodruff, aka Double Birds. He has it. I think he has it like tattooed on him at this point. Um, but God, what a great series that was because the, there was the Yadier Molina home run obviously punctuated it. The strikeout, the backwards K of Carlos Beltran to finish it off. There was the incredible um, Andy Chavez um, highway catch. Ro- the catch, the highway robbery, the catch. Just that game alone, but then earlier in the series, also the Sotoguchi home run. Um, yeah, great series. Yeah, it was terrific. I, I was actually kind of wondering if you were going to trip up and say that the strikeout of Beltron was going to be the the top moment. And it was, like, for being, like, a because most of the top moments end up being offensive moments for a team. Yes. But in that case, it actually was a pretty big swing in the win probability because, obviously, the Mets plummeted from whatever they were at to zero. To zero, yeah. In a way. But, yeah, the, the Molina home run... Was, it was pretty much identical circumstances to the Brian Jordan one I mentioned earlier, other than it's set hey, of the no, Hey, stop. I will not stop. How dare you? No, not. Uh, okay. But it was uh, 50% to 91% on the win probability. Okay. So Yeah, that makes uh, sense. Next up, there, there, I have a disclaimer before, I, before you guess here, and this is, a, I would say, the most difficult one on the board probably. Well, maybe the one after it. But uh, 2006 World Series Game 5. And so I will give the caveat. Mm. The actual biggest win probability play of the entire game was actually uh, in favor of the Detroit Tigers. But, this, uh-huh. but I'm asking for the highest win probability play that helped the Cardinals' odds of winning. Sorry, say, say that again. Was it So is this a play by the Cardinals? or? Well, th- this is a play that benefited the Cardinals' <clears throat> probability. Was, was it Justin Verlander's errant throw? Was that in Game 5? It was. And was that the play? It was. Oh, that was so good. Do you know what inning it was in? Oh, I don't. Re- I don't remember what it, it was in the like late middle innings. I thought it was in the bottom of the fourth. It's actually, bottom of the fourth. It's while that we're discussing this, because Justin Verlander is currently pitching. As I'm asking this question, but yeah, yeah, Justin Verlander p- pitching extremely well this year for the Astros. I don't have the game on in the background, so I don't know how he's doing tonight. Uh, it's two one Astros right now. Okay. Okay. Know who was batting at the time of the Aaron throw? This is this escapes me. Was it? Can I get one hint? Um, let me think of how I can give this. This was a player, and there are a few players that fit this criteria in this lineup. This was a player whose brother also played in the major leagues. I can think of at least three players in the lineup that day whose brother played in the major leagues. So well, I'm just going to guess at one of them and say Yadier Molina. That is incorrect. Molina did score on the play. The batter was Jeff Weaver. Okay, I would not have guessed that. <laughs> yeah. But I do remember Jeff Weaver. 
And Scucci uh, yeah. advanced to third. Weaver ended up advancing to second. Uh, Cardinals went from 48% to win the game to 66%. What a great moment that was. And th- this one is a, a very memorable game, but for what we're asking is definitely going to be a challenge. Uh, 2011 NLDS Game 5. 2011 NLDS Game 5. Okay, so here's here's the challenge for the 2011 NLDS Game Five. Let me ask this: this was this would have been the Chris Carpenter lights out performance, and I thought they won. Did they win this game one to nothing? They won the game one nothing. Yes. Here's the problem: is I have completely blanked on what that one run is, and I'm sure that's what this is going to be, but I don't, for the life of me, remember what that run was. I just remember Chris Carpenter's because I'll full disclosure. I did not actually watch this game. Hmm. I was, I was following the game. What I was doing, um, my friend Kyle, who went to Mizzou, um, a bunch of us who, he was the only one in my friend group who wound up going to Mizzou. I went to Illinois college. Um, and some of my friends who went to SIUE, um, and one of our other friends who was still in high school, we, um, drove to Columbia on the night of this game and went to a concert at the Blue Note. Um, and the reason we did this this night is because that's when the concert was, obviously, and it was one we wanted to go to. So I was actually at a um, metal show at the Blue Note in Columbia, Missouri, when this game was going on. I was just following along on my phone. And like right as the concert ended um, is when I got the update that they'd finished it off. And I just remember yelling out when this like room of clearing out of people, Cardinals fucking won, and everyone went crazy. So that's my story about uh, the NLDS 2011 Game Five. Are you just vamping for time right now, or I'm I'm, I'm stalling. Um, it's not going to help because I don't remember who got the run. So this is actually very. This is I, I, this is not a thing that happens very often. The highest win probability play of the entire game was the very first batter of the game. Raphael, oh, wow. Raphael for Kyle led off the top of the first inning off Roy Halladay with a leadoff triple. But okay. didn't score the run, but okay. having a runner on the third with nobody out is a, a big thing. So it took the game from 50% to 59%. Okay. The okay. second biggest win probability play was Chase Utley flying out in the bottom of the ninth. So it was not a yeah. game where there was a lot of um, alternations on win probability. Yeah. All right, so now I'm going to move from... Uh, one class game to another, uh, 2011 World Series Game 6. Yeah, and here's the problem here. I could see this being a 2011 World Series Game 6. That is what you said, correct? Yeah, I, I don't know so the exact the, So I don't know the exact number off the top of my head. I would guess there were probably a dozen plays in this game that had a higher win probability in one direction or another than the Fercal Triple. Yeah, and that's the problem with this. I can easily see this being a trick question because I can think of multiple, multiple moments that that could be it. I mean, obviously, the the thing that jumps off the top of your head is the David Freeze triple. So that's one option. Okay. Um, the Lance Berkman hit is is another potential option because they were down. Were they down two or three entering that inning? Because Josh Hamilton and Homer in the top of the home run, so that's or the top of the inning. That's another thing to consider. But they were actually down um, in that inning as well. Um, it's going to be one of those two. I don't think it's. I don't think it's the walk off home run. Um, I'm going to say by the fact that you put this in, I'm going to say the Lance Berkman hit. 
That is incorrect. Was it the David Freeze triple? It was the David Freeze triple. Okay. Okay. So it was the obvious choice. One of the big things with the... So one of the big differentiations is, first of all, uh, Berkman... The Cardinals had actually scored a run already, so they were only down one whenever Berkman got his hit. That's right. Their odds of winning... Because they had a runner at second. The tying run was at second. Yeah. And whereas Freeze, the tying run was at first. And also... By getting a triple, it means you have a runner, obviously, in scoring position. And yeah, good point. Like they had a better chance of winning it in the ninth than they did in the tenth once the hit had been made. Okay, but fair it, point. It was a David Freeze um, triple. It scored two, as I mentioned. Uh, do you remember who the pitcher was for the Rangers? Was that one Derek Holland, or was the other one Derek Holland? It was not Derek Holland. Um, um early Nef- in the game. Um, Neftali Fleece? Okay. Yeah. Yep. So the um, it was in the bottom of the ninth, of course. Uh, Cardinals were at eight percent, like at the beginning of the at bat. Obviously, by the time you got down to two strikes, it was even lower than that, and it went from eight percent to sixty-two percent in an elimination game, which is a pretty pretty big jump. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so next up, we have two thousand eleven World Series Game Seven. Two thousand eleven World Series Game Seven. This is interesting. I was um, watching the game with my family, um, like my whole family, um, like my mom's extended family. We were all like we were gathering anyway, but the game was on, which was nice because like I got to got to see the, the Cardinals clinch the World Series with my um, with my grandpa on my mom's side, who's been, you know, at this point he's uh, 89 years old, but he's been a Cardinals fan his whole life. So that was kind of cool to get to see that. Um, again, this I am stalling for time now. Um, so the the Rangers actually went up. Was it two nothing in this game at first? I'm not privy to disclose that information. Okay, <laughs> so um, I'm not gonna get this one either. I don't think because um, for whatever reason, the, the details of this game are, are just are fuzzy with me until the very ending of the game. Other than the fact the Rangers went up first and then the Cardinals um, retook the lead, and then for a lot of the game. Um, they they held a lead by a couple runs. Okay, so the the events of were is in the bottom of the first inning. The Cardinals were down by two. Mm-hmm. David, David Freeze had a two run double mm-hmm. off of uh, Matt Harrison, who had started the game for the Rangers, mm-hmm. high the game, and so the win probability went from thirty three percent to fifty three percent. Okay. Fun fact is that that was the second game in a row for the Cardinals that. A player had gotten a two RBI hit in the first inning because Lance Berkman had hit a home run in the game prior. Yep. And that one actually was a higher win probability added, but it was only the fifth biggest play of that game because game six was insane. Yeah. All right. So 2012 NLCS game five. 2012 NLCS game five. Is that what you... Sorry. Oh, I typo. uh, NLDS game five. Okay. Yeah, we don't have to talk about the. I, I think five. that was miserable. Here's my problem. Here is I I can't remember whether Pete Cosma or Daniel Descalso got this hit. It was one of them, though, right? Well, they both got very big hits in the game. What was it? One of them that because I rem- I do remember this game being being really wild and just kind of all over the place. Um, oh boy. I think it was. I think this one. I think the one that had a higher change in win probability would have been the P Cosma one, right? That is correct. 
Okay. I will not be able to remember who it was off of. Uh, the pitcher was Drew Storen. Okay. I think probably the main reason that the Cosmo one had a higher win probability swing was that it was unlike the Descalzo one was a one run hit and the Cosmo one was a two run. The two runs. Yep. And it was a two run single. It took the Cardinals from 51% to, uh, to win because they were down to two outs. Though at that point they tied the game because Descalzo had gotten a hit the battle before and then up to 92%. Yeah. Nice. So, uh, 2013 NLDS game four. 2013 NLDS game four. I can give you one detail about this game that Please do. you remember which one. So this was against the Pirates, and it was the game that Michael Waka had a no-hitter going into the Oh, my God. Um... And I'm going to give you some further details because this is not quite as memorable, but there was, but the, uh, the number one play... It's a Cardinals two-run home run in the top of the sixth inning. Can you remember the batter or the pitcher? The twenty the twenty thirteen season I blank on a lot just in general, and I don't know why. Um, it was a good season. That's a bad season to blank out on. Yeah, and I don't just that whole year of twenty thirteen for some reason is sort of a blur, and I don't know why it is. Um, I know, like I remember them playing the Pirates. I remember very little about the series. Um, I'm I'm just gonna take a wild guess at this. Um, okay. Was it Matt Holiday? Off of what pitcher? Who would have been pitching for the Pirates? Um, can I get Can I get one hint? Um, this is a pitcher who is still active in Major League Baseball, though he is not currently a pitcher for the Pirates. Was it Francisco Liriano? It was not. Okay. Matt Holliday did hit the home run. He hit it off of Charlie Morton. Charlie Morton, okay. Who is now right. a, uh, a pitcher for the Rays. That's right. Yeah, that, that was a good signing for them. It was. Uh, 56% to 81%. Cool. So uh, Yeah, I, I remembered Matt Holliday doing something in this series. Um, it's not one of my more vivid Matt Holliday playoff memories. Uh, yeah, I remember the 2009 NLDS Game 1 as well. Yep. <laughs> and him getting... Uh, Picked off third base yeah. out during Game Six of the Worlds. He he had some he he had a few rough playoff moments. What's the remember the good ones too? What was the the famous slide um, with the Rockies? That was a playoff game, wasn't it? The 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 wild card game one or the it was it wasn't the wild card? It was the tiebreaker. Yeah, that's it, yeah, it was a tiebreaker. That's right. Yeah. Well, I thought it wasn't that he slid. I thought he was that he missed the base. I don't remember the exact details. Well, on my head, I I think. He slid, and I think in actuality he probably missed the base, but they counted the run anyway. Um, but he like ran extremely hard. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of my memories of it, but I could be wrong about that. So, uh, 2014 NLDS Game Four. I will tell I will tell you just so you make sure that you get everything straight. This was against the, a game against the Dodgers that uh-huh. they ended up winning the series on this game. Okay, um, this was the game where they won the series. Yes. This would have been the Matt Adams home run off of Clayton Kershaw. How many runs was the home run? Three. Do you remember what inning it was in? It was the. It was either the sixth or the seventh. Um, I think it was the sixth. It was the seventh. Okay, the seventh. Because that's also that's all detail though. You got right. Yeah, because the seventh was also when uh, Matt Carpenter had owned Clayton Kershaw earlier in the series, right? Yes. Okay. Yep. 
So that took the uh, it took the Cardinals from thirty seven percent to eighty percent, and Matt Adams had uh, quite the bat flip, and it was yep lovely and beautiful. And one of my one of my favorite John Rooney calls was that home run. And now Matt Adams, um, his team needs to overcome a one run deficit today, and then win tomorrow, and he'll get a World Series ring for the first time in his career. That or if, Diaz will get one. What if he um, what if he hits a game winning home run tonight? Well, I mean, it wouldn't be a walk off, but like if he right, the, if like if he, if he give, gave him a home run, if he hit a home run to give the Nationals a lead that they did not relinquish, that would be very good. If he hits it off Roberto Ozuna, they should like just start building the statue now. Yes, I'll do it myself. Okay, uh, so we'll go uh, 2014 NLCS against the Giants, Game Two. Game two. So NLCS against the Giants in 2014, there were like a, several like big home runs. Um, would this I get the games I get mixed up because there was a big and it's sad to say there was a big Oscar Tavares home run in this series. Yes. Um, game two, you said. Yes. Was game two the Colton Wong walk off? It was. Is that your guess for the, that? Uh, that's my guess. It is. That's correct. Yep. So what inning was it in? It was it was in the ninth. It was in the ninth. Do you remember who the pitcher for the Giants was? Not specifically, but I have an educated guess, and that's uh, Sergio Romo. Sergio Romo is correct. Okay. You got every detail right there. It was uh, it was a solo home run. Yep, and I I remember um, uh, the other thing I remember about that was uh, AJ Pierzynski jumping off the bench and doing the. Uh, um, Triple H DX uh, crotch point while John Jay um, pointed and laughed in delight. I think that was the Colton Wong walk off. That or no, that right. or no, that might that might not have been the Colton Wong walk off. But I do remember there was an some AJ Pierzynski thing after that. But but okay, so that that was sixty three percent to one hundred percent. So pretty big little play. Yep. Um, so twenty fifteen NLDS game one, the only game the Cardinals won in the playoffs. That's See, I, the, there were the two big home runs. Stephen Piscotty and Tommy Pham both homered. I have, I get the order of these backwards. I think the Stephen Piscotty one was first. I'm going to say Stephen Piscotty's home run in that game. This is actually a bit of a trick question. It's not really a trick question, but it's a very difficult one. Mm-hmm. The top play for the Cardinals in that game. So if you remember correctly, the Cardinals scored a run in the bottom of the first. They held on to a one-run lead up until, I think it was the seventh inning. Mm-hmm. So at that point, whenever Piscotty and Fan hit their home runs, they were building upon the lead. Yep. The number one play for win probability for the Cardinals was Anthony Rizzo grounding into a double play against John Lackey in the seventh inning. Huh, okay. I remember... So from 70 to 80%. I knew John Lackey had pitched that game, but I would not have guessed that. The, the two home runs are mainly what I remember from that game. The other thing I remember was after that game was the first time I met um, a bunch of people that are our friends now. I met Gail, Matt, Austin, um, Groby, and Spence that night. I, I have met all of those people. Yep. Not, not all that night, but I, I have met them all at one point or another. Yep. Oh, and, and uh, Drew Silva. He doesn't remember it, but I did meet him that night. I, I my experience with Drew, he doesn't remember it either. So I think I think he's openly told me he doesn't remember it. So you're probably in the clear. Right, our our, so. our friend Drew Silva. Yes, we'll have to get him on sometime. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We'll, we'll just feed him a bunch of whiskey before we get him. See what it says. <laughs> that may happen anyway. Like the the drunken fantasy baseball preview edition. Yeah, sure. <laughs>
So uh, what? We only have one more. Uh huh. And I'm ready to start answering questions once you get through this one. So this is recent history. 2019 NLDS Game Four. 2019 NLDS Game Four. What shifted the momentum the most? Is this a Cardinals play? Yes. Okay. Um, NLDS Game Four. Uh, so, yeah, again, part of the issue, like I was following this along at work. Um, you know what's incredible is that I'm not going to get this one. Um, I'm trying to think which of those moments would have added to the win probability the most. Um, I would love it if it was Carlos Martinez coming in and shutting things down, but I don't think that's it. Um, what was it? The, I mean, was it the Yadier Molina walk-off? It was not the Yadier Molina walk-off. It was okay. the Yadier Molina moment, though. In the uh, in the bottom of the eighth inning, Yadier Molina hit a uh, game-tying single off of... Uh, do you want to take a guess on the pitcher, or should I just say the pitcher? Uh, just go ahead and oh, say the pitcher. Uh, the pitcher was Shane Green. Okay. And it took the card from 26% to 55%. Okay. Okay. All right. So I think you did pretty well. Better than I thought I was going to do. All right, I'm I'm ready to uh, have you quiz me now. Okay, this this is so there are. Sorry, let me count here. Ah, Freddie's getting off my lap, so I'm gonna have to start over. It broke my concentration. So there are 18 answers here, and I just it it I think it's not possible to get all 18 of them, um, but it's a single question. So just na- get as many as you can. I want you to name every single left-handed pitcher who made an appearance for the Cardinals in the years 2010 through 2015. Now, but before we start this, I'm going to ask. There are 18. Do you want to ponder a guess as to how many you think you will get? I know there are some you won't. I will say that I can get... Do I get any like strikes if I said if I like guess a righty to the lefty or something? Or no, no, no. I've... I'm gonna say I get it. I'm gonna say I get a solid half. Okay, because yeah, there were some people that I legit had to go back and and make sure they're right or left handed. Also, there's one person on this list that I I don't know. It's a person that only made like two appearances. I don't know if I just wasn't watching those games. I legit feel like I've never heard of this person. So, um, but there's some good names on here. So 2010 through 2015. Um, they're going to be almost all relief pitchers, um, if that helps you out. But there are a few starters. So, okay. so um, this is so I, I promise I won't cheat on this. Is it okay if I use like a, an Apple Note to like write down the ones I've guessed, just so I don't start guessing guys again? Yes. Okay. So I will start off by guessing like the certainly the most notable starting pitcher of the group. Maybe the only one I actually think of is uh, Jaime Garcia. That's one. Um, a player that I think is deeply underappreciated because he was very good at his role, but he had a manager who had brain brainworms and would deploy him very incorrectly. Uh, Randy Choate. That's one. Okay. Or that's two, I should say. So uh, Kevin Segrist. Three. Uh, Mark Zepchensky. Four. And I'll say I was looking how I figured this out. I just looked through um, every Cardinals pitcher that had with a minimum zero innings who was on uh, in that time period on fan graphs. So it was by war. Mark Sepchinski near the bottom of the list. He is the, he has the, 
he has the second lowest war of any of these 18. But now granted, it's because some of them only made like a few appearances, but um, yeah. So, I mean, this, this is a, a banner to, we mentioned David Roth a lot in the previous segment. This is banner remembering some guys. I think he would appreciate. Oh my goodness. We're going to get, we're going to get into some names, my friend. Okay. Um, Arthur Rhodes. That is number five. Another pitcher who pitched in 2011. I think he pitched in 2010 as well. Trevor Miller. That's six. There's a name that popped in my head right away that I'm pretty sure is a lefty. I'm starting to second guess myself, but I'm going to guess it anyway. I believe Brian Tallett was a lefty. That is number seven, and he is, of all these uh, pitchers, the one with the lowest war in that time period. He had that, negative, negative that five. Does not surprise me. Negative five war in 18 games for the Cardinals. Negative five, negative point five. So yeah, negative point five. Negative like, five would be incredible. Yeah, he, he was bad. He wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I have seven so far. So yep. this is the part where I start to. Uh, you you have guys at the top and at the bottom basically, and Trevor Miller kind of in the middle as far as by WAR goes. So you're gonna start. We're gonna start getting into some very very random names at this point. Yeah. This is going to start getting to the point where I really start to have to my, put my editing hat on because there's going to be like long periods of silence. I'm like, oh, God, I got to cut out that nonsense here. Yeah. <clears throat> because I will take this way too seriously, and I will hold up the episode <laughs> for my own personal vanity. Yeah, I believe um, it. I feel like there's somebody in like 2015 or so that I'm missing. Like Cho- They're definitely – without yeah. – without, just kind of running through the names, I can definitely see at least two from 2015 that you're not thinking of. Possibly more. I'm trying to think if there's any, I'm trying to think if there's any other starters that I'm forgetting. There, there is there is one. He didn't make a lot of starts, but there's definitely one guy who made some starts, and I think it was in 2015. Yeah, Garcia is definitely the mean guy. I, I did just think of another player. He was a guy that started briefly, but it was mostly a reliever by the end. I believe Tyler Lyons would have been during that time. Yeah, he's he's number eight. Okay. So I said I would get nine of them up to eight. So I feel like I should just get one more and then just take a knee and just. Oh no no! I want to hear you tr- guess, make some attempts at some of these. Okay. I had a name. Let me. Escaped me all this. There's a yeah. There's a couple of starting pitching prospects that made starts but never panned out around that time, if that helps. I did have a a vintage guy to remember, but I, I think he was a righty, so I'm going to put that aside for now and maybe revisit it later, but I don't want to mm-hmm. ruin my uh, run here. Oh, boy. Running through, um, basically trying to like remember like playing out of the park or uh, – Baseball mogul game yeah. this time. Who were some of like the deep reservoirs of? If I had to say, I guess I'm gonna guess you get like two more right, and then are just gonna hit a wall. I don't think I'm gonna get that many more right. <laughs> it's very uh, noble of you to think that. I'm yeah. Gonna get that many more right. Let's see. 2010, I don't remember as well as the other team, so I'm. Like looking at the guys I have listed, besides Garcia, I don't think any of these guys, or I guess uh, Rhodes and probably Talent would have been on that team. But feels like there would have been another lefty in the mix somewhere. Yeah, I don't. One of these guys, uh, one of these guys I know pitched in 2010 in the bullpen like full time, but I don't 
think he was on the 2011 squad. There is one guy who wound up playing for the Rangers eventually, but hmm. this is maybe asking too much information. But are there any position players on there? No, and I I would not have included that. Um, okay. As as far as I can tell, I think all the position players that pitched for the Cardinals in that time were righties. Yeah, I mean, um, it usually ends up being infielders, which are other than first baseman, pretty much exclusively right-handed. Yeah, so there there's none. I know that John Jay eventually pitched for the Cubs, but he didn't pitch for the Cardinals. Let me break it down a little bit. Um, for sure, there are two guys who were like full-time, entire season bullpen pitchers. There are, from what I can see, three left-handed starting pitching prospects that didn't pan out, a failed free agent signing, um, two random guys that you probably don't remember exist, Um and then a couple of guys who are like bullpen guys, but I don't remember anything about their tenure as Cardinals. So I'm going to throw out the name that I had in my mind. And if I'm mm-hmm. wrong, then you can start giving me like much more detailed hints. But a name that came to mind was Brandon Dixon. I kind of feel like he's the righty, but I'm going to he was He was right-handed, but that is a very, very good name to remember. I feel like he at least captures the spirit of what we're going for. He absolutely does. Okay. So uh, you started giving me um, – more detailed hints or uh, here's for one. This guy was a guy. He was a former first round pick that we wound up trading. Okay. Um, let's see. And he, he did pitch for the team. We traded him to this year as a starting pitcher. Wow. Um, what team was he traded to? Seattle. Oh, uh, Marco Gonzalez. I should yep. him. Okay. Yeah, that was, that's number nine. Oh, pal, on my part. Yeah, that was. That's probably the next easiest one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Here's a guy who was. I can't remember the exact years, but it was for a couple years. Um, he was a full-time bullpen pitcher. He wasn't one of the first guys out of the bullpen. He was sort of a back-end guy. Um, he he was not. I don't think a rule five, but he seems like a guy who would be a rule five pick. He at points after he was a cardinal pitch for the rangers and maybe the royals he was very short and um the the brought danny mack always talked about how fast he was how fast he was yeah like straight line speed hmm. i remember him and joe kelly were the two bullpen pitchers he'd always talk about how fast of runners they were yeah, i feel like once you mention this i'm going to know it but i'm completely blind. i know you were sam freeman oh god oh yeah that was it was always kind of I always thought it was sort of dubious that they would con <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> if they didn't say the like, same about Joe Kelly, then I would think it would yeah. be really dubious. Like the short, skinny black guy, you're just going to assume that yeah. he's fast. Like, okay, okay, but okay, yeah, he definitely was on the Cardinals for a while, so that's yeah, that was very gettable. Okay, 2010, full time Lugie. I don't know if he was on any of the other squads. I mainly know of him from 2010 because I remember um, the the. Um, really long game against the Mets that I wrote about. I, I don't know if he actually appeared, but there's a shot of him in the dugout laughing at Felipe Lopez pitching as well as he did. He um, was an older pitcher. We signed as a free agent was just a straight up loogie. He had a very, very round face. And there are, is it Dennis Reyes? That is, that is number 10. Okay. Um, okay. Boy, they're they're we're now we're getting into some tough, 
stuff. I don't know if you even remember this guy played for the Cardinals. He was a good left-handed relief pitcher for the Phillies. Cardinals signed him and he like lasted only I think like only a couple months because he sucked so bad for us. What year was he on the Cardinals? Good question. Let me pull this up really quick and make sure I'm getting those details right. Oh, I think I, I think I might know. Is it uh, J.C. Romero? It was J.C. Romero. That's okay. number eleven. Yeah. Um, Twelve, maybe. That yeah, sure, probably. I, I think he was actually on the 2011 team that they played in the NLDS. I think he might not have been on the playoff roster, but I believe he was on the Phillies that season. I'll put it this: if you don't have any more to guess, the rest of these, I don't know if I could even come up with hints for because I don't okay. know what. No. So All right, let, let's sort of reverse the roles here. You tell me a name, and I'll try to come up with a hint. Tim Cooney. Tim Cooney was a. He started. He was one of the. He's one of the prospects that didn't pan out. I know that. Sort of, yeah. He was kind of one of those like prospects, like sort of in the way that we refer to uh, Austin Gomber now, yeah. where it's like he's a a fine organizational piece, but for some reason people get very excited about him and uh-huh. try to throw him in like Mookie Betts style trade proposals. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, that's what I got. 2015, I think he pitched. Sure. Uh, Raul Valdez. Raul Valdez. I, um, I I vaguely remember him, but I can't think of any de- details about him. Okay. <laughs> I couldn't come up with a hint for that one either, nope. in part because I mix him up with one of the other guys who is Brian Fuentes. I think I may have forgotten that Brian Fuentes pitched for the Cardinals, to be honest yeah. with you. Yeah, I was really red. Did we trade for him maybe? I don't know. I don't know. Um, it feels like a minor league free agent when he was like okay. five or something like that. So we're now left with three more, and these are the names. These, uh, are, like, are these like prime cut remembering guys sort of territory. Oh my goodness, yeah. One of them is John Gast. Yeah, I'm I'm doing the chef's kissing <laughs> right now. You, you can't see me, but that's my reaction to John Gast. John Gass had was a little bit of an intriguing like organizational prospect as a left-handed starter, but like his arm fell apart. I, I thought that's how it yeah. went. It, it took me it took me a while whenever John Gant started pitching to not think they were referring to John Gass. Well, there's John Gall, John Gast, and John Gant, and it's just yeah. John why do Gall, John Gall? I vi- like specifically remember. Yeah. John Gass was a big like I, I remember him being a guy that Veb liked a lot, but he just his arm fell apart so. But he did make some starts for the Cardinals, I'm pretty sure. I don't remember the years, though. Okay, now these next two, this first one you would only ever remember because he has a an awesome name, but he was not, he barely pitched for the Cardinals. Barrett Browning. Yeah, Barrett Browning I remember vaguely. He was like an older, like minor league pitcher for the most part. I think he ended yeah. up eventually signing with like the Dodgers AAA team. Yeah. I think he was a really big hunter, if I remember correctly. Which I think that's yeah, I think that's true. That sums He's up a redneck, redneck guy. Yeah, um, which is a good thing like to be most, if your name is Browning, you know. Unlike most baseball players who spend their free time like reading Proust all the time, <laughs> a big hunter. Yeah, definitely don't go look at uh, Paul DeYoung's uh, Instagram right now. So. Oh boy. I, I mean, I mean, it's nothing bad. He went, he went on a duck hunt and uh, did pretty well. So. Oh, okay. Well, that, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. The, and this last one, and this is the one I referred to. I he made two appearances for the Cardinals. Let me pull up what year it was. Um, 
if you know who this is, I will be impressed because I legit don't remember this guy even existing. I suddenly, I, started, I suddenly started thinking of PJ Walters. It's not PJ Walters, is it? No, he was right-handed. Okay. But like, like I remember a lot of random Cardinals, but like just some of the names that kind of surround him, like Eric Fornataro, Marcus Hatley, Chucky Fick, Mike McDougal, um, Brian Augenstein, Nick Greenwood. Like, I remember all those guys. This guy... Brian Augenstein was actually a name that I thought of, but I started thinking that maybe he's a catcher. He was right-handed, I think. Yeah. I maybe should have checked on that. Um, This guy, he made... In 2010, made two appearances for the Cardinals, went 0-1 with an ERA of 9. A, a, a FIP of 19.08. Um, good. No, and I... Do, have you ever heard of Evan McLean? I don't think I have heard of him. I've never heard of that guy before. I, I This is legit a rare moment for, like... I, I Like, a lot of guys like you, I couldn't think of most of these guys off the top of my head, but, like... Was he, like, I was a, shot, a September call-up, maybe, or...? I think he would have had to have been. And the Cardinals were his last stop. They were the, his first and last Major League stop. He had been... So he started off 2006. He started off – maybe he was a Rule 5 pick a couple times. That's the only explanation for this. 2006, began his pro career with the Mets in AA, then went to the Diamondbacks AAA team, and then finished 2006 with a Mets AAA team. Then he went back to the Diamondbacks AAA team for 2007 and 2008. 2009, started the season for Memphis with the Cardinals AAA squad. And then finished the season again with the Diamondbacks AAA squad before going back to the Cardinals AAA team for 2010. He made two appearances for the Cardinals. I think he probably was a September call-up. Um, sucked and then never played pro ball in the U.S. again. He pitched 2014-2015 in the Mexican League and then made a comeback in the Mexican League in 2018 um, where he posted a, an ERA of 9.26 and a FIP of a little over 7, and he did not pitch in 2019. So there you go. So I just want to clarify for everybody living at home, or anybody listening at home or at work. or if you're, some, if you're somehow still listening to this at this point. So I just want to clarify. Terp here decided to quiz me on Evan McLean. I quizzed <laughs> him on, like, the greatest playoff moments in Cardinals history. So you, you can evaluate for yourself who <laughs> be harsher of the uh, – now, now, what I what I had originally thought of was um, going back and doing that same thing, but from 2006 to 2010. I don't know. I suspect that might be more difficult. Oh yeah, I like during that period, and it's easy to write it off as it being because the Cardinals weren't as good. But that was also like when I was in college, I just didn't yeah. have as much time to watch baseball. But I wanted to also make sure 2011 was in there because I. I Wanted I you know I knew you'd be able to probably think of Arthur Rhodes and Mark Sevchinsky and Brian Tallett and Trevor Miller so that made it that helped you out a little bit but yeah it, as soon as I got like to the lower names in this I started thinking that maybe this was a little too mean but um, I wanted to remember some of these names except Evan McLean who I, I yeah. I'd never know before straight up like a new segment called Let's Learn Some Guys <laughs> yeah and, and I learned about Evan McLean if nothing else. Yeah, we learned his whole backstory. Maybe I'll maybe I'll make a uh, something moments in Cardinals history about Evan McLean. You should try to get an interview with him. I maybe could. The, the other seems... guy I've considered, the two other guys I've considered reaching out for, and considering the fact that they're still playing would make it difficult. 
Um, one of the guys I wrote about in my large adult son's post, um, Brian Osnowitz, or no, Mitchell Osnowitz, sorry. Um, it'd be hard to get him to be on. Yeah. I I don't. He's still in the org. I don't think he's ever going to crack the majors. I wondered if maybe he'd talk about it. I don't, like his like like dad or uncle or something liked a tweet of mine or something like that. The other one, and this would be way too big of a poll. After I wrote that article on Trey Fletcher, his I I had wondered why it was getting so many views. Apparently, both his mom and his dad uh, shared it on Facebook, um, talking about how much they like it. So if not Trey Fletcher, maybe Trey Fletcher's parents. Hmm. Yeah, that could work. But yeah, maybe I'll reach out to Evan McLean wherever he is. Hopefully, he does not listen to this episode. Um, I don't think I think that would make him not want to come on. So. You should you should definitely reach out to him. I think that probably the main person that like shared one of my articles that I wrote, um, besides the time that Dexter Fowler replied, I was going to say I was going to say Dexter and Aaliyah Fowler. One of one of the bigger like express endorsements of something I wrote. Um, just to bring it back to a previous topic, was from the founder of Deadspin, Will Leach. So, oh yeah, everything came back together. Yep, and uh, yeah, it took uh, over two hours to get there, but um, actually, uh, the first chunk of that was us talking. So, about two hours to get there, but um, yeah, if you somehow for some reason stuck around this long, then there you go. Yeah, if this is, if this ends up being a like a lazily edited episode that has like large amounts of unclear um, noise. Just know that I'm editing a two-plus-hour uh, bit of audio during a World Series game and take pity. Yeah, yeah, and we can uh, – yeah, that is what it is. Um, I I am losing my voice at this point also, so I, I look at like a sparkling water or something to help out. I'm just going to just do straight vodka at this point to overcome the, uh, the pain of not remembering Marco Gonzalez. yeah. Uh, that was pro- I'd say that was the most glaring. That was the only other one I thought you for sure would get. I thought maybe you would pull Dennis Reyes out of your out of you know out of the back of your mind or Sam Freeman maybe. Yeah, those were gettable, but I'm not as regretful about not getting them. Uh, I, I should have gotten Marco. That was that was my fault. But you piece of shit. I will. I mean, I agree, but not for that specific reason. Um, and on a, on the next episode, which will be episode five of St. Louis Bullpen, uh, John commits seppuku live on air. But only after we do some uh, uh, trivia about the uh, uh, about the 2010 uh, Cardinal squad. Yeah. When I, for some reason, blank on the name of Jason LaRue, I'm ashamed <laughs> that I resigned my post from uh, St. Louis Bullpen. Now you have to take over. So, uh, well, sorry. All right. Well, I think it's uh, I, I think it's. Well past time to go. Uh, yeah. Would you like to uh, do some plugs? Yeah. Um, my Twitter account is Turpin4Prez. That's T-U-R-P-I-N, uh, the number four, P-R-E-Z. Follow me on there. Um, that's where you'll find me talking about things, sometimes baseball, often not. Um, I mentioned before my Instagram is Turp underscore E-S-Q in case you want to see Freddy pictures because that's pretty much all it is. Um, also, maybe some gloating about me and my uh, dad's second consecutive uh, Greenfield, Illinois salsa contest win, but that's neither here nor there. Um, also, my uh, my mom has a uh, very wonderful uh, cooking blog that she updates with some good recipes on there called thekitchenwench.com. Um, and then also, of course, our very fine website, uh, stlbullpen.com. So out of curiosity, this winning salsa, is it going to be in direct competition with Matt Carpenter's salsa? 
Like, well, so here's the thing. I, I don't know what Matt Carpenter's salsa that he actually makes is like. I have tried the when Schnooks did like the um, release of like a, a Matt Carpenter branded salsa. Our salsa is better than that salsa. Yeah, but I'm, I bet I'm, I, it's weird because I like salsa and theoretically would want to try it. But then I see that it's like six dollars for a not that big thing of salsa. It's like, well, yeah, I get this quality for like two dollars in a different aisle. It would be a good it would be a good contest of our salsa versus the salsa that Matt Carpenter, like a small batch salsa that Matt Carpenter actually makes. Yeah, Matt Carpenter, if you're listening, I know you are. Come on the show. I'm calling you out. The two of you can each make uh, a batch of salsa. I will try it. I will do a blind taste test. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll do um, – maybe for the next episode, I'll try to put together a wrestling-style promo uh, calling out Matt Carpenter for his salsa. So oh boy. maybe hear that in the next episode. Uh, maybe I'll just forget about it and not do it. Yeah, I was just thinking after this episode, this is what we need is we need more things to add to episodes – as we, uh, yeah, the- we will, you know how like Twitch streamers will do like 24 hour streams. We will eventually do a 24 hour podcast. <laughs> yeah. We got to find some charity that, um, is willing to be associated with us being, which is really tough since this is not a monetized project at all. So, yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine anybody would want to give us money at this point. Maybe Donate my PayPal to convince me to stop doing this. Maybe it would be like how in my high school they would play Mbop during like cafeteria hours and people would like if they donated enough money they would stop playing it <laughs> that sort of thing. But with us talking about um, um, baseball and media, Evan McLean and Evan McLean. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, anyway, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at JohnJF125. That's also my Instagram name. I again, whatever. I have some good Boston pictures in there. I have, yeah, you do. My, my picture with Black Fan is. Yeah, it is on there. Those those were good. There. Those were good posts. I tried doing a side by side with the tweet, but I couldn't quite the Heyman tweet. But I couldn't quite get it to work out. So I'm sure I have a bunch of people that are not Twitter people that follow me that are very confused by the post. But whatever. Yeah. Um, you can follow St. Louis Bullpen on Twitter at STL Bullpen. Um, you can follow the the website at www.stlbullpen.com. You can listen to the podcast on uh, Spotify, uh, Radio Public, Google Podcasts. Still haven't quite gotten the iTunes thing worked out. Mm-hmm. May not actually get that to work out, but well, yeah, you have options. Whatever you're listening this to on this, yeah, whatever you're listening uh, to this on, just know that there are other options out there as well. So yeah, like it, it's definitely convenient if you're a Spotify user. But I realize that a lot of it really is. A lot of people are not Spotify users. Yeah. But the Radio Public app is free, so. You can download cool. that, and even if yep. it's the only podcast you're listening to, what are you going to do? Demand a refund? It's free. You're good. Yeah. I can see why you would probably demand a refund after listening to two plus however long this goes, hours of this nonsense. But yeah. remember, you didn't pay for it, and there's no such thing as a free lunch. Yeah, if you have like a if you have like a St. Louis to Jefferson City commute, you can probably knock this out. So. Yeah, if you're um, like a college student who goes to uh, Mizzou or something, that would probably be a, a pretty yeah. good one. Though if we keep vamping a little bit longer, we might be able to get into like most state territory. Yeah, <laughs> let's go ahead and cut it off. Yeah, my commute to college was a solid three and a half hours, so we got a oh. stretch for that one. Yeah. But uh, maybe next time. My voice yeah. is starting to go out. Yeah. All right. Bye. See y'all. Everybody.